Welcome my first guest, Joey Martinez. Joey is a good friend of mine that I met in 2012-13 at a Wounded Warrior event in Santa Monica, California. Joey's a great guy. He's a hospital corpsman, served at a surgical shock trauma platoon in Iraq during 2006, the height of the war, and went on to graduate advanced lab tech school where he ran his own lab in El Centro, California. From there, he had a rough exit from the Navy and struggled for a while, but found peace in doing his podcast, The Devil Doc Talk Show, and going on to learn about growing and nurturing. So give it up for my good friend, Joey Martinez. So how's life going? Good. Good. You are guest number one. Numero uno, huh? Yep, number one. How's it feel? Welcome to the show. I'm excited. Dude, this should be interesting. So how is how do we start this thing? Or have what we, do you want? Uh, that's the thing, is like it's your thing. I know. It's just weird, man. It's been a long time since I've done one of these. What, like an interview or since both interview, be interviewed, all of that shit. Just talking to somebody actually else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's start with the basics, man. How have you been throughout this whole fucking nightmare that we live in right now? Actually, pretty damn good. Um, so, you know, there's inherent different lifestyles that uh, people have. And I, I would say that, like, uh, we haven't really changed much because... Well, given the, you know, disability stuff and whatnot, we don't leave the house. So, That's like, you know, <laughs> before, so. yeah. So before all this happened, I, you know, I didn't really leave the house. Heidi did. You know, Heidi was working. That's one thing that affected us is work for her, um, personal training stuff. And but now she's into woodworking more. So it's like you know, give and take, and you know, that's kind of the cycle of life. And for me, at least, it's like uh, the for the kids too. Everybody's worried about the kids' education, and I'm like, our kids have been homeschooled, you know. So it's not where the only difference is is what's available for enrichment, like our horseback riding lessons are paused for a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff. But you know, we're getting right back into it, and I, I, it kind of is one of those things. Like a lot of my, a lot of my good friends that have kids, they, they're overwhelmed. Uh, I think even spouses are overwhelmed by the time together more so than the virus itself and uh, pressures and all that stuff and learning how to actually cope with each other is uh, I think another experience that this uh, virus has brought, you know, to the attention to most Americans because even spouses, it's like you, name, name a, a, a couple or a family that spends a hundred percent of their time together. Like people are being forced to right now. What was that? Farmer John. Farmer John's? Yeah, Farmer John's family was tight knit. Yeah. Let's, let's, you know what? Let's go back to the beginning because you said your disability. So let's start from the very beginning so people can get okay. it. So I've known you since what, 2014, 15 timeframe? Mm, yeah. That, uh, yeah. that IABA thing way back in the day. But for those, yeah, who- it would have to be because I was living in the Astor House, so 
That's how I make memories. Got to have an anchor to it. Nice. But for those who don't, who am I talking to? Oh, hi. I'm Joey. <laughs> so Joey Martinez, former, oh, yeah. former corn. <laughs> um, let's start with the basics. Where are you from originally? Uh, so I was born in Stockton, California. And uh, that's funny you brought that up. Me and the wife were just talking about like moving a lot, you know, when I was young. And uh, so I was from a lot of places up north through Northern California, uh, between Tracy, Stockton, Manteca, even this really little cool town called Copperopolis. Uh, it's gorgeous, right over in, um, uh, can't remember, in, in the Sonora Mountains area or some shit. I can't remember. And uh, ended up living in Lemoore pretty much from third grade to graduation and then enlisting in the Navy uh, there. So I, I say I'm from Lemoore, uh, California, which is Central Valley. It's a very, uh, I would say small town, but actually where I live nowadays, it's even smaller than that. So I, I would say Lemoore is actually a pretty big town nowadays. And, you know, they got a movie theater and all that good stuff. And uh, they actually have a naval air facility right off of there too. So, you know, Navy roots, uh, you know, uh, my parents were in corrections, you know, that's pretty much the environment out there is military or law enforcement and, or agriculture. So, so when you say corrections, you mean like prison guards? Mm. So yeah, prison guards. Uh, I, I, I would say prison guards, um, for the majority of their career. And then later into that leadership roles of what corrections have set up. Um, there's even like investigation and uh, special operations stuff in, in corrections itself. Um, it's really an interesting law enforcement field. A lot of people don't really know much about it. Uh, and uh, it gave me a great appreciation of service for sure. Um, and then the definite understanding of you know self-discipline and discipline. So my parents were, you know, people ask me if I grew up in a military household, and I was like, nah, I grew up in a correctional household. So it was like it's very different. Um, the say, Navy was... You would have wanted <laughs> to grow up in. Yeah. I mean, well, I would say it helped definitely with the whole military stuff because, you know, growing up and being in sports and wrestling and just being a rowdy and tough kid and, you know, the boisterousness that I think all of us guys have and uh, you know, everybody did the best they could, they could raise me, but it, it was like trying to catch lightning in a bottle. You know, it's just, I was all over the place and high energy kid. And so it was a good lifestyle. I loved it out there, man. It was, it's, I, I love visiting and, you know, seeing all the people out there. So that's where I call home is, or back from where I'm from is definitely more. So if I remember right, the Blue Angels still up there a lot, didn't they? Yeah, the Blues fly out there. They do an air show, or they did back in the day, I should say. Um, but the F-18, Super Hornets, the, all the different classes are from out there. And when the war kicked off, I would say early, uh, I want to I say 03. It had to been 03 uh, after their first real big. I think this is after George Bush said, uh, you know, we're good. We're going to stop the big shock and awe stuff. Um, and then like 30... Uh, jets flew over Lemoore to come home. And it was like the most insane thing to see. Like just 30 
freaking super hornets. I don't know if it was all super hornets, but just like this fleet of jets overhead. And it was just the loudest, coolest uh, thing. And this was before I joined. So Damn. so it was pretty, pretty cool to see. So growing up uh, in Lamar, parents, correctional officers, sounds like you had yeah. two paths to go. You're surrounded by military and you're surrounded by the correctional side. Did you yeah. give a thought going corrections? Not at all. Uh, that was the main, no, not, not whatsoever. Um, my parents raised me to do better than them. Uh, and that's the way my dad always kind of re- reinforced my actions or decisions was always make better decisions uh, than he did, you know, learn from his mistakes. Um, and my dad grew up in a hardworking family. Uh, trucking was the primary uh, thing back in the day in agriculture. And so when he went into corrections, it wasn't even a thing that he wanted to get into. Uh, he wanted to be an architect. And he was going to school and stuff. And, you know, families, you know, things happen. So he had to come home and support the family. Uh, and he ended up actually serving first on the fire brigades, the prison fire brigades, which has just gotten a lot of news now. Um, he was an inmate, but he would lead the inmates in and work with the inmates in the fire uh, firefighting efforts that they would do, um, which is a crazy program for corrections. Uh, yeah. Extremely interesting, uh, actually. Uh, and so then he transitioned into working as a guard. Uh, started, I think it was in St. Quentin or uh, one of those prisons. You just don't want to be near. <laughs> <laughs> Either uh, get stuck there or figure out how to get into management real quick. Oh yeah. Like he was, he was a smart, he is a smart man. He's actually a professor now at, uh, up here near Temecula in criminal justice. And he helps their correctional program oh, to wow. improve, you know, uh, what they do in, in their training. Cause that's, that's primarily the thing is my dad always taught me a sense of service. Same thing with my, my mom, and my stepmom, they were always involved in higher sense of service stuff, even though it was a career. Right. Um, and that kind of got me into things like NJROTC uh, early on in high school. Uh, again, grew up wrestling. So there's always a regiment. There's always a, a routine and a schedule. Uh, there's always self-discipline and bedtimes, you know, all that good stuff. Very much like being in prison. You know, my friend said that a lot growing up. But the one thing that I always tell people is it's really easy to you know, say things on the outward looking in instead of the, the inward looking out. And my parents were just themselves. And, and it was the era. <laughs> but it, I can see where they wanted you to have a regiment. Oh, yeah. That oh, yeah. And it helps tremendously with their work schedule. And I think that's something that's impacting people nowadays tremendously with this whole lockdown. Um, and, and the realization that public schools aren't just an inherent uh, education system it's it's a it's a, a daycare system so the workforce could actually be you know the workforce you know if you and if you're unaware of different scholastic programs uh you know different things like wrestling i always pitch wrestling because if you have a, rub- a rebunctious like boisterous kid put them in wrestling it, it, it will exhaust them you know that that is a promise football is great i love football i did play football too but wrestling was one of those things Ever since I was nine, I did. And it was like, hey, if you're going to have a schedule, if you want to work hard, if you're going to be an athlete, if you're going to do the whole, you know, the athlete and 
uh, education system thing and you want to look for scholarships and whatnot, uh, man, it, there isn't a better route because you're just going to be that much tougher. I, I truthfully believe. Hold on one second. Hey, I like your little logo there. And we're going to get into that in a bit. So um, on that, I mean, like I've been joking around people for uh, this whole lockdown that, you know, certain people feel like, hey, I signed, I did a contract with you. You know, I love you. I did a contract with you. We had kids. And part of that contract was I get eight hours away from you every day, except for the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes longer. Now, what the hell's going on? Yeah. So I think that's the thing is like this, uh, I, as a kid, my family, we did a lot of stuff. We went snowboarding, skiing and stuff. We spent a lot of time together, but nobody I knew, even as a kid growing up, ever spent all day, every day in your home, working from home, like as a societal norm. So it's excruciating, I think, for, for just a, a social mentality to adjust so quickly. Well, I, um, I've been keeping a journal throughout this whole lockdown thing, and I notate the day in lockdown that we're in. And as of right now, I think this morning was 203 days since San Antonio did its stay-at-home order. Oh, God. So we are over the half-year hump. That's craziness. Yeah, and that's, like you said, a week or two long vacation with your family. That's one thing. Sure shit. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Because you can handle the processing. You can handle, you know, and then there's all these external stressors and influences. You know, is this sickness as deadly as you know, the media is making it and et cetera, et cetera, you know, blah, blah, blah. Back to that. It's some questions for you. But what I want to know real quick, was it always Navy or was Navy what happened? Second choice. Navy was second choice. What was your first? Marines. I went into it. Okay. I had four years of NJROTC. Um, you know, with the and Navy, duh, that's where the end comes from in JROTC. And even from ROTC, like I was looking into that scholastically and I just didn't like that. You know, I didn't understand. Honestly, I didn't understand college. People like my parents, everybody around me, you know, honed education and, and whatnot. And it could have just been I wanted to hang out and have fun or, you know, hang out and do whatever else. But uh, at the time, I didn't understand when these uh, triggers should have been uh, pulled, right, for education stuff. So a lot of people think senior year, right, senior year in high schools, that's right. your year. But it's not. It's sophomore, junior. Those are the years you got to get your shit moving for colleges. If you're going to be an athlete, if you're going to go uh, scholastic um, scholarships, whatever you got, uh, or academics, rather, uh, if you want to do those things, that's the thing I think would have helped me figure things out a little bit better. And that's what I'm teaching my kids now. But at my takeaway was, you know, I spent X amount of years doing wrestling, uh, foot, you know, football, varsity, all this stuff, um, NJROTC, and I just did the community college kick. But when I was more interested in enlisting, in, in I was like, I just want to blow shit up and shoot things. Yeah. Like, 100%. Hold on real quick. Buddy and yeah, no, no. No, no. 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 Come here, buddy. Come here. Lay down. No. The joys of live streaming. 
There we go. Yeah, I know, right? But uh, so yeah. So uh, Navy was second choice. What what happened uh, to the Marines? Okay, good question, right? A lot of people be like, "Oh, so you were gonna join the Marines?" Mm, that's what everybody says, and I'm like, "Nope, nope." I actually was there with my dad and you know the guy. Uh, I think he was either staff sergeant or sergeant. Really cool dude, all right? Solid dude. And me and him and my dad were talking, and I was like, "Yeah, I just wanna, you know, do mixed. Uh, it wasn't mixed martial arts at the time; it was hand-to-hand combat." And you know, I wanted to put the years of wrestling and, and all this stuff into uh, something that I can carry over um, and, and also continually serve. And he was telling me about the wrestling program they have in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps wrestling program. Um, and they, ha- they have all these extra things, cool stuff. You could be a certified, uh, I don't know if it was McMap at the time, but, uh, you know, all this different crap. And I always had a niche for medicine ever since I was a kid. You know, my dad got injured when uh, I was younger, and I always would do research on his his uh, his problems, uh, degenerative disc, spinal issues, uh, spinal cradial, you know, all those different things. And so my dad, you know, took a breath, and I didn't. I was just like, yeah, blow shit up. Let's do it. And he was like, no, let's let's <clears throat> let's take a breath and let's think about this. So my dad, being the smart man that he is, goes, hey, Mr. Uh, Sergeant Marine Man, uh, do you have any medical programs? Because he has an interest in this, and he's, you know, uh, well, well-versed. well He's not, you know, a, a pile of bricks, essentially, even though I was a thick, big kid. I've always been. Um, so he had a hard-on for me to begin with, the Marine dude, uh, which was great. And he goes, about that, we don't. Oh. <laughs> and... So on that, he goes, have you ever heard of uh, Navy Corpsman? And I was like, what the fuck is that? Right? And he goes, well, let me tell you about Navy Corpsman. He goes, it's one of the most honorable and prestigious things. And in fact, if you're going to be a Corpsman, I would recommend you go FMF. And I was like, the fuck is that? Okay. (laughs) So these are things I've never heard of. You know, everybody hears of uh, the specialized programs, you know, nukes and, uh, you know, for your smart boys, you know, nukes and whatnot. And for your dumb kids, you hear about fucking uh, boatswain's mates and how you could be a boatswain's mate and maybe go seals. I'm like, bitch, that's how they get you to just chip paint for seven years. <laughs> so, Unde- I mean, I went... Seaman. What I is it? All the jobs out. Undesignated seamen. Oh, no. Yeah, they could... All those different programs. I was like, nah. So the guy told me about that, and he goes, FMF Corman, and literally as if it was written in a movie or like a naked gun, like a goofy movie, the Navy dude, the recruiter, Flavio Flores, I remember his name, comes in like half just, you you ever heard about Navy Corman? Yeah, we're talking about that. Why don't you come on over to my office? So we walk over with the Marine dude, and we're talking about the Navy, and you know, what it could provide educationally wise. And after X amount of years, I can, you know, uh, do this retirement stuff, like all the cool shit the Navy sells you. Right. And I was like, okay, but how do I make sure I get FMF Corman? And he goes, Oh, so you really want to do that? And I'm like, yep. Like, how do I get that? Cause that's what I want to, I want to do that. But if also this, so I want to do both. I want to blow shit up and I want to shoot things. And I also want to like 
do medical stuff. And as a kid, I was like a retard when it comes to that. Like, wh why would you have those dualities existing in you? Like, why would you want to fuck shit up and then fix it? It's like, I don't know. Sounds, sounds amazing to me, actually. It, it Even re-saying re, re it again, you know? And That's so, uh, yeah, we got the pamphlets and all the information. And I went home and I sat on it. And me and my dad talked about it. And we went back, I think, a few days later. And I, I was signed up. And the program with two grand bonus, which gets taxed to shit, which you get like a thousand dollars. Yeah, learning, you know, learn financial education is really we need that. Yes. Um, because yeah, it's not, uh, Joe Rogan's hundred million dollars is not a hundred million dollars. It's like not at all. It's like, like that's a three million before tax or after taxes. <laughs> and if he would have stayed, stayed in California, California, if he stayed in California, he would have been even hit harder. Yeah. It's nuts, dude. Yeah. So then, yeah, I enlisted in the FMF uh, as a corpsman, FMF, and they recognized the NJROTC. Uh, so I got E3 out of boot camp. And, uh, you know, I, I was a part of a debt program. So I wasn't supposed to go to boot camp until the following year. So this was just like a month before my, I want to say either 18th or 19th. It had to been 19th birthday. So I was 18 when I enlisted, 19 when I shipped out to boot camp. And uh, a seat came up, like, right before my birthday. And I was like, I'm out of here. So I went, I think boot camp was August to October, uh, graduated, and then went to core school. So Sorry, what year was it? Oh, uh, 04. So you, the one thing your recruiter could have told you is, you know, pass core school, be a male, and you're going FMF. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, like, but like that, that was, that no was the joke. thing. I, I argued for it. It was in my contract. I want FMF. Yeah, I don't think so, it would have been an issue even if it wasn't. <laughs> right. And that, I didn't know that. So I went in, and in boot camp, everybody thought I got fucked over for some reason. And I was like, no, this is what I wanted. I want to be a corpsman. And so my RDCs were, like, talking to me, like, are you sure? Like, you want to go FMF, though? Like, and I didn't I – wasn't, I wasn't fucking aware of the whole war tempo and what we were doing – I just knew that that's what we were doing. I didn't know what it was to the nth degree, right? Nobody does until you're in it. So then, uh, yeah, after boot, went to core school, and then that's where they got my teeth cut. Like I was like really into what's happening because all of our instructors were fleet returnees, FMF. Um, some of them were Mar. Uh, not it wasn't Marsoc at the time, was it? No, I think it, back then it would have been before. It would have still been force. So yeah, Mar Marine Force, whatever the fuck it's called, recon guys. Yeah, the so them alone would take the education a step more. Like, hey, uh, this is fucking real, real. And P.S. This dude got a bronze star because he went into a tank and pulled somebody out, then threw him over a fence and himself over a fence, and he got shot in the midst. And we're just like listening to this, like you know, young kids, nineteen years old, like what? Yeah. And I'm like, tight, what'd you get shot by? Was it a, a 7.62? Was it a, you know, like all these questions in my head. Because when you start learning ballistics, I was like turned on. I, you know, I really love ballistics. It was a weird science that I, I enjoy still. And uh, so throughout school, I ended up being the adj, the class adjutant somehow. Um, school was great. I love school. That is. Huh? What is a class adjutant? So people who don't know what that means. 
Mm. So it's just a, a position in leadership for the, the class. Um, like in boot camp, you have multiple leadership roles. Uh, I was the med yeoman. And then before we actually ended up graduating, I was doing the med yeoman, dental yeoman, and yeoman job. Uh, we ended up being one of the most winningest classes in boot camp. Uh, and like we were the only, we were the, supposedly the last male only division before they started uh, integrating mixed uh, ships or whatever they call them in boot camp. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. So like your, your company was half female male. After yeah. 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 So that was an interesting phase of Navy, I would say too, because I don't know, it was just so much change happening all at once and everybody was all getting accustomed to it um but our our ship whatever they call it or our platoon um we were like good to go so and then in boot camp they were like or i'm sorry in course school they were like a lot of fleet returnees in our class but it, it just our class mates weren't they were shit bags at some times okay like complete absolute shit bags and don't get me wrong like i was cool with everybody and i was you know that guy that was just like hey y'all need to calm the fuck down you know we need to really chill out and it was funny because one of the uh the classmates he was e4 at the time he was a sergeant in the marine corps then became a, a navy corpsman um and he was the class edge right before I was. So he was like the last ditch hope to get this shit fixed. And I leaned on him heavily to try and, you know, get things fixed when, when I was in adjutant position at the time. And uh, the funniest thing he said to me though, was, you know, the fleet's nothing like this. You know, everybody is they're they're, they're you know, you got to be able to take care of your own shit and uh, you're going to do good. And I was like, cool, man. Cause I didn't know, I didn't have any grasp of understanding where we were, you know, at the time. But uh, yeah, he was a great guy. Uh, Char Charles Bales was his name and uh, great dude. Then uh, the whole school changed their entire policy on phase liberty. So phase three liberty was only granted to certain A schools in, in their, in Great Lakes uh, Training Command or whatever it was. You went to course, you went to boot camp in Great Lakes and course school. Yeah. So you just crossed the street. Exactly, exactly across the street. And at that time, course school was one of the only schools that get phase three Liberty right away. Like as like soon as you check in. Boom. Yeah, it was tight. Yeah, so it's been, it we, like that for, I think it's still kind of like that at uh, Fort Sam. I see more yeah. sailors in civilian clothes than I do airmen or uh, army guys. Yeah. You see, that's the thing is like, I love that. I, I you know, I felt like they were treating you like an adult. Yeah, exactly. You know, if this is the responsibility you're going to give me, treat me like the adult you want me to act like. So, you know, course school was kind of fun that way where you had to grow up real quick. Um, it was really interesting. It was before the whole individual classes started. I heard. Uh, which I, I think it diminished a lot of the tradition and it went from just, can you memorize the shit or memorize the shit and, you know, perform it like, like it's an EMT course. Let's go, you know, get on, get on with it. Well, the, um, th so there was a dark period when the individual courses came, then when they moved down here to San Antonio to Metsy and mm -hmm. the unified thing where they were using the air force curriculum, 
it seems like from the people I know now, it's gone back to what you and I would have gone through, which is more, you know, instructor, student, course-oriented stuff. Because there's yeah, a I, lot of bad feedback from the fleet. They didn't want <laughs> that were it, learning. Not, they didn't want the individual people. Um, and I, I don't know what it is. Because I'm not saying they weren't as, as skilled or, you know, uh, uh, actually, I would say yes. In the critical skills, they weren't as skilled as most corpsmen that came from that traditional, uh, you have a mentor-mentoree relationship within a class because there's a, an educational dynamic that does happen, I, I believe, when, when you split up in groups, uh, when you're doing the hands-on instructor, uh, what are they, it's not lecture, because you're involved in it, right. but that, that uh, hey, P.S., let me also add that if you are going to the fleet, this is what they would always do, they would also add, yeah, yeah. it's like, here, get that. Here, here's what we need you to learn on a soap note, the S, in the O, the subjective and the objective, and then the doctor's going to finish everything else out. And then the nurse O would walk out, and the HM1 or HM2 would come in and go, bullshit. You need to know how to take this thing all the way out to the P. So you need to know how to do the assessment, and you need to get a plan. Because if you go out to a small boy, which is a uh, small ship like a frigate or, or a destroyer, the doctor may not have time. If you go out to the Marines, the doctor's going to expect you to do that, or the IDC, the independent duty corpsman. That's if they're there, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you're not capable of taking it all the way to the plan, and if you're not able to execute a plan, uh, I think that was really hurting a lot of people. Uh, even when I got home in 06, and I started working back in my old ward, because I was one of those MAPS, or MEP, no, it was individual augmentee program yeah so let, let's keep track for a second before i get all higgly bigly course schools changed all that shit um and we went away from more classes structure to individual studies and it it, it greatly affected uh i think the outcome of not only tradition but the quality of corpsmen that were coming out of course school and this was all the way back in 04 well let's, 05. let's touch on that a little bit because i you know i i've been around the METI campus, for lack of a better word, because I'm on base a lot. So where they had the combined Army, Air Force, and Navy medical training programs. Mm. The people who seem to be diehard into tradition in history is us, the Navy. And I think that it plays a big role in how much different, what different caliber of enlisted medical professionals we have versus the other services. Well, you never hear of Army medicine. You never hear of Air Force medicine. You never hear of uh, Coast Guard medicine because it's still Navy medicine. Navy medicine, yeah, right? So I'm not – I've never been one of those – I mean, clearly, oh, let's go Navy, right? I love it, right? No, but I am one for tradition. So when we look at the history of, you know, or even the medical field, you can't have that conversation without Navy medicine, period. So it's like a lot of the specialized field uh, developed from naval medicine to be able to do things in a fix and not have that physician level of care, physician's assistance. You know, all this stuff is rooted deeply in naval medicine. Uh, trauma, you know, uh, when you look back in the major wars in the 1700s, you know, when this field was created, you know, we weren't, rec it wasn't. Uh, called the corpsman, you know, all, all those traditional names and whatnot, 
and even in medicine, you can go further back, you know, back to like hermeticism and what the caduceus means and, and all this different crap, right? Spiritual, physical, mental, and, and however you may break down what existence is. So as, as weird as an as a aspect of perspective that is, I do believe that within tradition, you are forced to come to terms that it isn't just a medical procedure. It isn't just a medical uh, assertion or a medical practice or knowledge. It is rendered at the level of, of this necessar uh, necessary honor, because if not, you know, it degrades. Like, look at medicine nowadays. There's no honor. There's no ethos within it. Um, there's no morality. It's all billing codes. What can I tippity tap away while you sit here for five to 10 minutes? And how much can I bill you the most so I can recuperate the insurance costs that I'm losing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? You know, people make whatever they want to. So you finish core school, you go off to what is it? FMSS. Uh, I think it's FMSS. Yeah, FMSS. That's what it was called back in the day. It so, used to be, now it's called FMTB. Ooh. Probably something different now, too. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Some admiral or some senior needed a get star. Yeah. yeah. So you get you go to FMSS. Which coast did you end up on? East Coast. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So North Kakalaki. So were these guys who were teaching you the extra? Oh, yeah. Uh, extra, extra. Extra, extra. All combat, I take it? Bro, or, every or single one of our instructors, okay? on So not just in core school. Every single one of our instructors had the FMF pin, all right? It wasn't the FMF pin like it is nowadays where it's, uh, hey, you got to get your fucking FMF pin. You blacked out. You there? I'm still here. Okay. So it wasn't like the FMF pin is nowadays where it's it's kind of like a senior chief's bullet point uh, to get master chief or vice versa. Um, it was a very inherently traditional hard thing to get, especially if you were doing ground forces or uh, logistic support. You know, there's just three different identifiers within the FMF pin. Right. So a lot of those guys probably also had the FMF ribbon, which brings oh, yeah. FMF pin. They had to get shit grandfathered in. Yeah, yeah. they had to actually. So the I didn't know this at the time, but the FMF ribbon required you to run at least a third class Marine Corps PFT. Yeah, and then that was actually simultaneous. I think they had the same Marine Marine regs, so a lot of people were testing out for Marine regs, especially East Coast guys, because East Coast guys kind of kind of stupid for that. Eh, Why would you want you know, bags? I don't know. I think it comes down to they wanted to prove themselves as equal to the Marines. A lot of the time on East Coast, it was very standard oriented. Like I've never seen anybody walk into a thrift store yelling at somebody because they were in dress blues when they're not supposed to be because they need a pin for a ball or something for the ball right now. And he got his ass chewed out. The dude left, sat in his car. The guy, the guy that was yelling at him came back in bought the thing for him, gave it to him, and said, don't ever walk around like that again. Like He was like out of uniform in some very particular way. And I was just like, whoa. The, the West Coast Marines and the East Coast Marines always had this thing going, you're Hollywood Marines if, you're, if you went to boot camp on the West Coast. 
and you all got to stick up your ass if you went to boot camp on the East Coast. But when I was yeah, in East Coast, I noticed that there really was a defined difference between the Marines on the East Coast, like really did have to stick up their ass for lack of mm-hmm. terms. And the West Coast guys were a hell of a lot more laid back. But that's the East Coast in general. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So well, also the side of the country where all the Pentagon is and the Marine Corps barracks and you know the Navy yards, everyone, both services. So I think probably all services have sticks up their ass on the East Coast. It does because that's where the most physical on like, we can touch you and affect your life very very easily. And the West Coast the, is somewhere you're out in the hinderlands. Yeah. Why? Why would we care? I can't see you. Just maintain your, you know, maintain your shit. And if you look at it, though, disciplinarily, Okinawa, the furthest away. Is hardcore. Is hardcore for, you know, people getting in trouble, even though they're way out in the middle of nowhere. Then you have the... That's kind of self-inflicted. Like, they they shoot themselves in the foot a lot. But let's go to your deployment. So you go, you finish field med. Yeah, field med was a trip. I love that place. It was, I love North Carolina. It sounds like you didn't go straight to a Marine Corps unit. Nah. So everybody that wanted to go further into the whole recon trip, there was a pipeline. All right. And I didn't even kind of want to fuck with that shit because I'm not a runner. Okay. Never been a runner. I ain't trying to play no stupid games about running. I'm not a runner. I'm too thick and I move too slow. Back to Charlie back in core school. He used to, because he was a Marine and he deployed before you go. You're the perfect guy I'd love to stand behind. I was like, why? You're thick as like a fucking refrigerator. I was like, okay, cool. So running around, I just wasn't, that wasn't me. Uh, somehow I got San Diego, even though it was like, no, I don't know how it happened, but when we graduated, our platoon, our second division was a uh, second platoon. They, uh, a lot of people got deployed straight out of, of of FMSS to their unit, the rifle company or whatever was deploying like hella quick, hella, hella quick. And this was like in July of 05. And I ended up going to San Diego. So I was in NMCSD, uh, Naval Medical Center, San Diego and San Diego, uh, Balboa, San Diego. And uh, I got sent to a ward. It was just five North. And on the indoctrination, you have to redo basically all your basic corpsman skills so you can be uh, kind of like a, a, not a bed nurse, but whatever the nurse needs, that's pretty much what you're doing, basically. Yeah. So I was working on Five North as a ward corpsman um, and doing, I can't remember what else I was doing. Nothing, I don't think at the time. And I was just working my way up to this thing called class three corpsman that the hospital does. So you're able to do IV fluids, continue, discontinue, do all this different shit. And it's a level of essentially nursing skills. And you have to like level up and get all these things done. And it's like a colostomy bag changes, bed changes, you know, uh, uh, labs, um, take uh, ambulation, stuff like that. And then I got uh, picked up for deployment for a map as a, as a map. Which is Marine Augmentee Program, I think it was. So I think Linda, this is a good time to point out that for Corman versus, and it, it isn't a competition, but Corman versus Army Medic versus Air Force Medic. We are at core school, and if you go to FMF, 
or FMSS or FMTB, whatever it's called now, you are given a base skill set that basically gives you the ability to run the entire gamut from taking someone's basic IVs or basic vital signs all the way to going into a surgical setting and assisting in surgery. Like that's how we come unpackaged from school. Where yeah. the Army and the Air Force, they have specific MOSs that fall under specific categories. Like a 68 whiskey is only going to be able to do his job in the field. He's not trained to go work into in a hospital. Uh, Air Force have various different levels of medical technicians that do specific things, and that's their entire career field. So you and it translates better too, though their shit some, yeah, translates. Yeah, that's also because the Air Force, especially the Air Force, they have a whole educational program for their people. But back to what you were saying. So just so people understood that you can go from a hospital to the Marines, to the teams, to a ship without really much extra training. You have the you have the base skill set. So you can do all these different things right off the bat. Yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, just having the conversation with people is, I wouldn't say difficult, but um, you have to understand people's perspectives of what a corpsman is shifts from what their experiences are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you run into people thinking that all a corpsman does is vital signs because that's all they have experienced or all they do is blood draw. You know, that's all they experience. Um, and then you have some corpsmen that have, you know, been with the, like every step of the way, different parts of the medical system. And I got a very clinical experience, which was extremely beneficial for my deployment because I had no clue that this is what I was getting prepped to do. And I don't know if it was by design or by grace or by whatever you want to call it, but, you know, working in the, the ward was extremely life-saving for all the patients to come because it molded my understanding of medicine it's start and finish point. Uh, in course school, we did uh, clinicals with the VA, and I got to work on psych, on a psych ward where they're severely disabled and also had mental issues, and they were locked down. And taking care of people that were in World War II and uh, you know Vietnam, Korea, like all different, all different wars. Some of them served in all three, and you're like, what the fuck, you know, like. What? No wonder why you end up here. Like, and it was one of those dramatic experiences where it etched something in the soul. So then, continuing, you know, throughout, you know, the, the educational portion, um, and then showing up in an MCSD, working on a ward, I got to experience a whole other level of of care, which was nursing, um, geriatric. Uh, we got to, I got to learn personally how to do. IV insertions uh, that would compete with anybody, anybody out there. I was the guy on the ward because that's what I wanted to be good at. Like, I took it serious. Hold on real quick. Hey, babe, can you put the dogs outside? Um, yeah, I think we needed to go. <laughs> hey, it works. So you got picked up for this deployment. What happened next? Yeah. Or where'd you so, go? Before the deployment, there was a workup. Um, and I think that's that's something integrated that a lot of people don't get, or it's maybe not exactly what should be happening, especially with training. Yeah. Um, 
So I got to go through a bunch of different rotations at orthopedic, gastrointestinal, x-ray, um, lab, uh, trauma, ER. I got to do, uh, I did not get to go to the, uh, the universities out in town to do, it, it was a trauma, tra I can't remember what they call it. It was a program uh, that you get to do. I think it's like a month long program. I didn't get to do it. A lot of my other buddies did. I can't remember what it's called, but it was an amazing program where you go to one of these universities, uh, hospitals and one of the critical care areas, like in Los Angeles, or, uh, I think they have another one at East coast. I can't remember what it's called. I think there was but, one, uh, yeah. one more time. I think there was one in New York, New York city. Yeah. I think so, but it's just a really amazing program where you're doing nothing but trauma surgical shit. And I didn't get to go to that one, but I was like, cool. When, my, when I actually deployed, my friends were telling me, yeah, we got to do all this shit already. I'm like, cool. Uh, and then we get deployed and I was with the first FSSG. So, and then it changed to the first MLG the same year. So we would transition a lot where I don't know why in just titles, but job functions always been the same. Uh, we ripped out in February. So it was the Super Bowl, day of the Super Bowl. Uh, we were flying out of March Air Force Base, I think it is. Uh, and I think it was a really, really cool time because uh, we checked into Bangor, Maine, uh, had a couple beers, uh, found out the Steelers won. And then we went to Ireland. Yeah, Ireland. Uh, got to have a few more beers <laughs> and woke up in Kuwait. <laughs> uh, and then in Kuwait, we sat around for a while. I think it was about a week or two. Um, no, it was actually maybe three or four days because uh, we were part of an advanced party. And it was a really interesting uh, transition because we were leapfrogging a lot uh, with our supplies and shit. What um, year was that? Oh, six. So were you, so February, so you were there right before I got there. Because yeah. you were loser, right? No, I was in uh, Al-Qaim, Iraq. Oh, okay, never mind. No, that was, that was our uh, hard base slash fob, because there was more fobs in the, in the area that, uh, of Al-Ambar and in the Al-Qaim region. Oh, okay. It was pretty... It's right next to the, I think it was the Euphrates. It's one of the riv main rivers. Were you by the dam? Uh, it's close to the dam. Okay. So, yeah, it's not not like right next door, but it's closer to than most. Because I think uh, we ripped into Al-Assad. Uh, I think that's the primary air base that we were ripping in and out of. And then we hopped over to Al-Qaim. And Al-Qaim was one of those places that nobody goes there unless you need to. It's just not a base that, you know, it's not like Al-Assad, it's not like Balad, it's not like Tikrit. Um, there really isn't, there was built up, it was, it had a galley, um, it was amazing for what it was. It wasn't defect, that's for fuck sure. <laughs> Those things were amazing. They were like a Costco, <laughs> they got, they got food. <laughs> they got old really quick. Well, they did because they kept getting targeted. So to me, I wouldn't, I didn't like going back to the defect, like when we got, out of the rotation where we were at and we came back in, there had already been like two fucking attacks on each defect that we were in in Al-Assad. And we were like, nah, I'm cool. I'm just eating my MREs. I'm not that hungry. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you get out to Alkeem. Um, what was that deployment like? It was, it was uh, interesting. It was very dynamic in the medical application and ap uh, application, I mean, like what you physically get to do medically. Uh, we did everything from amputations to um, uh, laparotomies to uh, thoracotomies. Uh, we did every. I didn't do them. The, the surgeons did them, but I got to sit in on it and hold Army Navy, you know, twist some shit and hold some shit. And, you know, they use my big body a lot because <laughs> it's a beautiful big body. Uh, I think I moved more AML cans than I did anything else, period. <laughs> So those are big medical supply can, cans, like you uh, get the singles and the doubles. Uh, yeah. So I was, we, we did a lot of extra work, you know, period. Uh, there's downtime in war, you know, period. There's, there's never a hundred percent action. Thank God. Um, we did several, uh, several, I would, I would want to say more than five or six mass casualties. Uh, we did walking blood banks, um, x-rays we did helicopter retrievals you know remains um uh, we did you name it like medically speaking it was the whole gamut of experience uh, we weren't we weren't a echelon three we were echelon two so, so you, for a lot of people like it's different for people who wouldn't know you were kind of like a mass unit type thing so the mass unit actually i think is based off of more of what you get at like an al-assad okay. where it has deeper resources and it has a lot more security so uh between like a ras and and uh al-assad yeah so we're just, you were an stp though right yeah so shock trauma platoon is the closest uh thing to stabilization that your first echelon which is your ground your guys on the troop uh boots on the ground guys right uh rifle companies uh, special operations forces, um, all of your infantry and combative units to include uh, uh, combat engineers, uh, reservists, whatever's out doing shit, like, bam, they get hit. We're the guys. That's what the shock trauma platoon is. Yeah. The first that we had attached to us was uh, uh, not something that I would say happens regularly as much, but it did start happening then like i uh, a lot of guys were saying no that the the fris and the stp weren't like this like at first um but then it did become that and i think we were the second evolution of that because the times between the golden hour that we were able to get from incident to stabilization to third echelon fourth echelon you know it's the fifth echelon is back home uh i believe and so whatever you get these people in and out of uh, harm's way and also into a higher echelon of care. Uh, we were it. So we were able to get that hour to about 30, 40 to 30 minutes, roughly. Uh, so any kind of injury you had sustained within about 30 minutes, your ass is in our fucking shit. And we're, we're You're packing you up. We're fixing you all the different good stuff. So did you guys keep bed space then or were you pack and go? Pack and go. Like, uh, get, it, them, get them stabilized put them on the bird they're out yeah our our shirt says pack them or no stick them tube them pack them move them and that was what we did like we, you got in you got out this isn't a higher echelon of care 
this isn't a, a treatment facility for uh, common illnesses and isn't like a, a fucking uh, what do they call it practice uh, home no 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 family practice yeah so you know this isn't where you get your vaccinations even though we maintained all the records for our personnel and shit too so well I know that um, like for us we had Fallujah surgical mm. you had the big surgical unit so Al-Assad surgical, TQ surgical, Fallujah surgical, which were all... And um, Balad. Well, Balad was actually a step up. Balad... Was they Baghdad, three Baghdad, or four? I think Fallujah was three. Balad was... Balad and Baghdad ER were four. Or no, they, I think they were just a higher level of three. Okay. More capable three? And actually, what I, what I really think it is, I think Balad became a pseudo three they weren't really there to treat unless it was their own forces it was to get you on a bird to get you to germany yeah or if, as soon as you get into that bird bro those those bird fucking docks whoo that's yeah. some cool shit First hand experience with that you know <laughs> um, yeah you told me yeah a lot of guys told me how amazing they were dude i never got to experience uh, uh, that type of in-flight care the, i think it's gorgeous the in-flight medical staff on board a C-17 leaving the theater to take you to Germany, which is usually your first stop, is they're unbelievable. Um, it's Air Force medicine at its finest. Then it rapidly falls off when you get to the land stool and you realize you're dealing with Army. Yeah, you get sent to the Army when you get home, which isn't the best. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you, get, you, you survive this. And you come home, and this is one of the reasons why I want to talk to you a little bit, because we're going to go into some current events here in a second, but I also want to set up your pedigree why we're able to talk about this. So you come home from deployment. Yep. You go back to San Diego. You return. Yeah, to your well, yeah, yeah. So then what happens? You get to go to another school. To put it a little Not bit. at first. So got home. The interesting thing about being within that that augmentee program is you're not necessarily on anybody's books uh, for any goddamn thing whatsoever. You're just a body to fill a spot, and then as soon as you get back, you're not a body to fill any spot. Get back to your command. You get back to your command. Your command's going great. Thanks. Welcome back. Uh, get to fucking work. <laughs> and so I went right back to the ward. Uh, everything had changed. The guys that that I worked with were FMF corpsmen. The, the, my LPOs and ALPOs were all FMF and ro rotated with your immediate staff supervisors. Yes, thank so, you. Leading petty officer and assistant. I, just so people watching are like, what the fuck Navy? Yeah, a lot of, I forget, because you know I just get caught up in the jargon. Um, <coughs> so Five North, they changed all the LPOs to blue side, like administrative corpsmen. Okay. And they were clicky as fuck. So I got back and the click that I bumped heads with was like direct leadership for me at that time. And I was just one of those guys like, Hey, just leave me the fuck alone. Um, let me do my job. I worked closely with my nurses. Uh, I moved up again cause they wanted me to reclass. And uh, all this extra work, you know, you know how people that stay blue side, or I should say stay in a hospital, 
um, work, very political. And as soon as that started happening, I started drinking a lot. And I was just like, look, I don't fucking like this place. It changed. And so I went to my senior enlisted uh, after I got written up several times. Uh, I went to my senior enlisted and I was like, hey, you got to get me out of here. Uh, get me somewhere I can actually do work. Okay. And they sent me to staff education and training, which was great. I stood there for like, I think a week getting classed up and trained up in their program. One of my good buddies, he was stationed there too. Now uh, we got uh, pushed through that staff education and training, which was great for us, you know, like being able to teach people some shit and uh, get involved with different levels of training and uh, the, what's going on in the hospital. Um, and then I got sent to clinical investigations department uh, and then animal, uh, which is department of animal research. Okay. So what is clinical investigations department? So CID is your primary investigative research for the hospital and it incorporates naval medicine on a large degree. Say again? But like studies and stuff like that? Yeah, studies like within the department itself, um, what's available as so far as Western science. medicine goes. Huh? They're, they're doing actual science at that point in time. Oh, yeah. Bench science, hardcore, beautiful science. Uh, we were in charge of our live tissue labs and also our cadaver labs. Um, so I got to do a lot more with that than I did even with the staff ed, uh, which it was the same department, different resource, if you will, uh, worked with the Navy. I'm sorry, the army directly. So I know it was no longer really under the, the Navy at that time. I worked directly with the army, I had to become a certified animal technician, which the army has. It's like, I think a 98 tango or 98, uh, something like that. Um, they have their own specialization within veterinary medicine, which is really fucking cool. Uh, yeah. So I worked with a veterinarian and she was an amazing commander, Commander Chen. And um, I got to work directly with a lot of cutting edge research, uh, medically wise and, and physicians and scientists and controlled lab studies, uh, uh, live tissue, like I said, studies, um, one of, one of the greatest studies I was ever a part of or got to assist at all was with the surgeon that I was deployed with. His name's Captain Alshire at the time. Um, and he was a captain at the time. His, still, his name's still Alshire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he did this shunt study. We did a lot of shunts in Iraq where a artery or a significant vessel was... Um, impacted usually due to amputation gross or or clean amputation uh, you'd have to do a shunt so the shunt is basically a tube that connects vein or artery and this this circumstance was artery uh, vessels so you can have a continuation of blood flow pretty fucking important right well the, the problem with it is the material so we went through tons of different phases of the study i i wasn't very privy to what or what or who you know i was just a technician you know i was cleaning stuff sterilizing things uh i got to assist in um uh, collection of data and uh, primary care or care for the animal uh which was really just care you know just just like i did on the ward uh and then i got to do more so 
research for trauma. So our IDCs, when they get their trauma surgical training or some surgical training, when they're about to go out and ship or with the division or whomever they're attached to, they get uh, advanced level of uh, uh, different surgical, emergency surgical techniques, such as the jugular vein cut down, uh, pericardial uh, tamponade, I think I'm saying it right. Um, they pop and sack? Pull, pull. one more time. Is that where they pop the sack, the heart sack? Yeah. 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 So, so the sack, the pericard, per, pericardial sack, right, inflames with fluid either because of a, a vessel rupture or an actual puncture or just trauma, blunt force trauma can cause this too because it's trying to protect itself. It's just like the brain. It has a little sac that increases and decreases uh, fluid. So got to do a bunch of direct surgical stuff like that. Uh, arterial bleeds were huge training success because even though you can have this in different environments, like, you know, the, there's a lot of proponents for no live tissue training that you can have a moulage training. And I've worked with moulage training and, you know, overseen moulage training and in, in, in makeup, right? Yeah, moulage is makeup, but it's just a cuter name than makeup. It's more fancy. Moulin. Moulage. Moulage. I think it's French. Sounds like, like triage. <laughs> so the live tissue lab, I, was, I loved it. And the research we got to do, I got to do an amazing program, which was the marine mammal program. I got to help with uh, dolphins to make sure their pregnancies were good. Um, Spay War, which is an amazing uh, resource, government non-government organization uh, that does a great stuff with the Navy. Uh, all, all of this beautiful things. And then I, I was uh, looking to go to PA school. At the time, I didn't know if I wanted to do PA surgical or if I wanted to do uh, trauma surgeon. So I was studying up on both and learning what the Navy had to offer um, as far as either officer, can, officer candidate program or uh, what would be the best benefit, right? Um, so I talked to one of my PAs that I deployed with, and he goes, dude, if you're, if you're not sure now, the number one step in the right direction is to get a C-school done. And he goes, you can go respiratory, you can go lab, you can go cardio, you can go um, I can't remember. There was another technical program, but they got rid of it. Um, all this different stuff that's right there at NMCSD. So there's actual uh, a command, and then there's a schoolhouse. This was before they moved everything to San Antonio, I think. And so I went to advanced laboratory technician school because they everybody I talked to, both physician and physician's assistants on all levels, all levels. So I talked to the trauma dudes. I talked to the surgical guys. I talked to you know, the basic family practice people, um, all that different kinds, cardiovascular guys. Uh, uh, one of my good mentors was a, the cardiologist of, of the command, uh, Commander Green, I think his name was. Really cool guy. He let me sit in on surgeries, uh, all this great stuff, right? And so their advice was go lab because labs are fucking hard, okay? They said, if you can wrap your head around laboratory, you pretty much got a free ticket up and down, except maybe cardio, because in cardio, their shit's even more meticulous. So 
went to lab tech school. Uh, I was a squad leader uh, pretty much the whole time. Uh, had a setback. I had to have a surgery uh, done. No, no big deal. Uh, but because of the timeframes for schools, it's a three-year program in, a, in 13 months. So for the Naval Hospital, it's a three-year advanced laboratory program put on through George Washington University. So you didn't, um, you, you just did the whole thing. Say again? You didn't, did you guys still have basic and advanced or was it just all advanced lab tech? Again, this, this is when they were phasing out a lot of, I think that's what it was that they phased out as we were getting in. There wasn't no more basic anything. It was just advanced lab. Um, Cause I knew and there was, and I, just, I know, I know that what you've told me you've done and I have a friend who was a basic and like, mm. it was basically glorified lobotomy and basic blood work samples. Yeah. So basic lab was that, but now the, the Navy didn't want to offer that anymore because you couldn't really get what you needed out of that. And they were already um, contra subcontracting, subcontracting with civilians to fulfill phlebotomist roles in the primary places where you need phlebotomists for corpsmen, right? So it, it just got milked out. It just was nothing there. there it wasn't a trade-off for the Navy financially. So if you're deployable, sure, having advanced or even basic lab tech, fuck yeah. But if we could just train advanced lab techs and still have them deployable, and we're saving a lot more money by cutting out that. And that's what they phased out because advanced lab got a, an SRB that was really high, and then they tried to renegotiate. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you signed me up for this one. And that's just the selective reenlistment bonus, uh, which was pretty prime at that time. It was one of the motivators, not going to lie, uh, to go advanced lab tech. And, and advanced lab tech school was interesting. A lot of the guys I deployed with uh, ended up going to uh, C school. A lot of the guys that I served with in different realms also ended up going to C schools. And several of those people ended up in my class. So it was a really cool like reunion too. Just so people know, so like I was saying earlier, the Army and the Air Force have very channelized medical uh, MOSs, mm. where the Navy has just corpsmen, but then we have these, what would you call them, secondary or advanced schools? Yeah, they're, they're literally secondary <laughs> um, uh, titles. Yeah. So, so the way that the NEC breaks down is actually it's a secondary title. Yeah. It's 8506 or some 9507. I don't, I don't know what it is. So I think there there used to be when Joey and I were in like 26 different uh, C schools that you go to. I was a corpsman who went to field med. So I was an 8404 corpsman. So was Joey prior to this. And really for males in the Navy, even now, if you're a male and you go to core school, you're going to probably end up going to field med. So it's almost like an extension of A school. So it's not really counted as a C school. Yeah, no, it's not. It, well, like you're saying, it is technically, but it's not because it's the basic to get you within that realm of the fleet, which yeah. is greenside. Um, some people I met never went greenside and ended up in C schools, and I just was not aware of that route. I did not know that existed. Yeah, but which you was in when it, when it was a mandatory, like from 2004 to probably 2010. It was pretty much every male is going to go through field med. Exactly. 2004 to 2008, 90% of your females are going to go to field med. Yep. So and even fleet returnees, in order to get 
uh, selective schools, you had to go through Phil Med. Yeah. Um, dental techs, when they when they got rid of dental techs, they had to come back in and do Phil Med. So yes. there was a lot of cross training, a lot of changes in the Navy when I was going through at that time. Yeah. So you go through school, you pass, obviously. Oh yeah. No. Okay. School again. I don't know what it is about me in school. It's like easy. I love it. It's easy. I pay attention and I go home and I get to have my me time. And that's what it really was. I'll tell you, uh, I'm not a great student in high school. I was like a C student, but I think I got out of core school like in the nineties. So like yeah. in the, in the 90 to 91, the only test I even came close to failing was pharmacology because fuck pharmacology and fuck pharmacological, pharmacological math. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it, gets, it gets wiry real quick. Thank God for iPhones for those kids now. But that's, I think that's the reason why cardiovascular text was so difficult because you weren't talking in, in the parameters of uh, milligrams. You're talking in nanograms and, and all this other crazy technical shit. And I'm like, nope, stop what you're saying. Like, they would have 30 people start their class for cardio tech, right? And maybe five or eight would graduate. Wow. I didn't realize yeah. that that difficult. Like so, lab tech school was difficult too. We started with like 58 or 60. And then by the time you're graduating, maybe 30. So it's like they're, they're schools, bro. <laughs> and they're compact. So usually programs are like, what, three this years? This one was three years. Yeah. Normally three years. This is a year. You got 13 months. Good luck. That's crazy. Right. And um, so you graduate, obviously, like we said, and then you go on to do your lab tech stuff for how long? So I had an interesting lab tech transition. Uh, I was actually originally sent to North Carolina, back to Lejeune, the Naval Medical Center or hospital, Camp Lejeune Hospital. And um, I had a lot of things squared away because I hated being a lab tech already, just right out of school. Okay. Uh, it wasn't me. It wasn't a good fit. And I did not like the work. It, I did not like the politics behind what was going on already. And I was like, I just want to go back East Coast. Uh, I had it lined up, you know, through the guys I've met before and whatnot. But uh, that changed. You know, everything in the military changes. I got offered a you do me one, I do you one type of scenario. Um, because somebody got a billet that they could not fill because of they didn't have the FMSS uh, school. So the interesting part was they didn't just let the guy stay at the command. They put him in the lab in San Diego, and they put me in a lab in NAFL Centro, right? And I was like, cool, I get to stay in California. You know, the next or pick of orders, I get a, I get a, you know, I did one for you, you do one for me type of scenario, and we're good to go. So I ended up in NAFL Centro roughly, I would say, the beginning of December of 08. Yeah, had to be beginning of December 08, for that sure. That one over by uh, Mount Whitney, right? Which one now? Uh, El Centro. It's off 395 Central County. No. Uh, it's oh, well, I'm thinking of China. Where am I? China Lake is up that way. That's um, El Centro is the home, the winter home of the Blue Angels. 
Okay, that's I get Lamore in those two backwards. That's why I was yeah. I asked you earlier about the Blue Angels. Yeah, the, the they go to Lamore for an air show and whatnot because it's a historical air facility. But El Centro is the home of the Blue Angels during the winter. Um, a lot of people don't know about Central NFL California, and not because like isn't there a summer home? Um, it's it's South Central California. Whatever, same. It's, it's still a the fucking armpit of California. Yeah, El Centro is a, it's hot. This is horrible. It, it's almost as bad as uh, the Inland Empire. That's where it's at. Well, it's a little bit north of it. El Centro's where Calexico is, if you know where Calexico is. Oh, wait, it's, oh, never mind. I was thinking it was up north. I thought it was on the other side of uh, San Francisco. There's a lot of, they've got a lot of training facilities up through that whole valley. Oh, like okay. just cutting up and down. So. Yeah, they stop there. That's the primary base. And then there's these little scuttlebutts all the way up and down. So you're in the middle of the desert, basically. At yeah. How did that go? Horrible. It was the worst. So you know those scenarios everybody tells you if you go into the fleet, like you're on a frigate, like the smallest ship possible, you have fucking nothing, and you got a, a, a can of tomato soup and uh, uh, a little bit of uh, fluoric acid, and one beaker and no pipettes and just a plastic straw. You need to run your labs. That's what it was um, in the middle of a desert. So the worst part was it wasn't the facility. It wasn't the command. It wasn't anything like that at that point. I'm a, you know, just recently graduated uh, tech student pretty much at that point uh, coming in. And it was, it, was, it was an interesting command. So the clinic that I went into had just gotten refurbished or whatever you want to call repainted and redone and modernized, right? Uh, for the new Navy appeal. Okay. Gotta love it. Except my room, the laboratory room. So a eight foot by, I would say 15 foot space of a laboratory, which is teeny tiny to begin with, um, never got touched. And in fact, it was like where people just put shit in like a storage room. Uh, I walked in there, I looked around, I was like, okay, so where's the lab stuff? They go, oh, it's with the x-ray stuff. So I go in the x-ray room. The x-ray room is nothing but storage. And like, I mean, they literally, had, they're just finishing up the project as I'm getting there for the whole clinic. And that's what subcontractors, that's the kind of job they do, okay? It's not a matter of, is it right to do? It's a matter of this is what I'm paid to do. Even in Iraq, we had work orders that had to get fulfilled by civilians. And I just said, no, I'll get in trouble and fix the fucking thing myself. Why? Because I'm not going to wait a day and a half for something that I need now. Okay? I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to have my electrician fucking fix it. I'm going to have my fucking other person to come by and fix it. And then guess what? I'm gonna, he did one for me. I'm going to do one for him. He needs fucking oxygen tanks filled. Cool. You got it. Right? So... That's the way it worked. Worked really well. Not at this place. Um, all of the laboratory equipment was expired. Uh, all the centrifuges were broken. None of the PMEs were performed within years after this, the, the, the tech that was there before me left eight months prior. So there was a gap in... You were solo lab guy, only lab guy there. Yeah. And that's, that's in within 100 miles this way and 100 miles that way, roughly. So Yuma and NMCSD are the two closest commands. Uh, and technically, at El Centro, I'm actually attached to Camp Pendleton. You were a BMC of Camp Pendleton? 
Yeah. Brand- so my my clinic. Yeah, my uh, records, whatever that shit person was called, was out of Pendleton because I was attached to an actual deployable unit, not a map unit. So that specific billet that I filled had an attachment to this uh, infantry or some Marine group or some shit like that. It wasn't even like a lab tech position. I filled two different ones at one time. It was really a weird billeting. Um, so long story short, I create the lab in six months. Uh, and as the years went on, I got it cap certified, which is college of American pathologists. I think it is, uh, which is a, a re- extremely hard thing for a laboratory to do in its first year, let alone when it's its first, um, uh, application of certification. Usually it takes two to three applications to get certified within it. I got it the first time out. Uh, Jayco certified, MedIG certified, uh, painted. I did all the refurbishing myself because guess what? There's still paint left over. Uh, I did all the drywall work, uh, the plumbing. Uh, when we got to order all the things that made the whole clinic look the same, I was in charge of all of that stuff, ordering. I had my own ordering card, credit card, all that different bullshit. I handwritten, hand, handwritten, hand-typed, right? All the SOPs um, that made the... Uh, laboratory within standard and operating function within six months. So then, yeah, so that was up to grade. I didn't get the certificates for those things until two years later because you have to be in operation a specific amount of time before your application and its testing equates to certifying. So it was really cool. I learned a lot about bureaucracy and uh, the ins and outs of you know technical standards uh, I did the AFIP investigations, which is the uh, aero stuff. So anything like an airplane, if something happens, uh, I have to do all the laboratory and medical inspection and investigation and then report that shit to the FIP. I did all that stuff. Uh, and I also worked as a basic corpsman, or I should say more so like like an IDC without the title. And I would just carry the note over to my IDC with the plan, and he would just verify it and make sure I didn't miss anything. Exactly what we were talking about earlier. Just the yeah. idea that out of the box, you can do everything outside the lab, but even some of the lab, yeah. including, hey, I'm going to see this sick call person. I'm going to diagnose him. I'm going to write out the treatment plan. I'm going to take it to someone who may or may not ever decide to actually sit down and see the patient they're going to trust what you say and they're going to sign off on it counter sign oh yeah yeah uh, my pas and my physicians uh we worked hand in hand because uh, you know out the lab tech so if if they knew hey this guy's going to probably need labs they just send me the whole patient and i would do start to finish note do start to finish labs write up labs do request labs secondary labs if necessary of course we still had all the phas and all the, the annual stuff and and you know our um was it our record maintenance stuff and you know but i really love being able to see the people that worked on the base especially one of my good friends from high school right uh get stationed there too uh he comes in he slid his knee in softball and i'm looking at his knee and i'm going hey you know that's not a raspberry that that's bad that's bad bad that's bad juju that looks like MRSA. you know i'm pretty positive that you got something bad, bad. And I didn't tell him that, but I'm sitting in my hair 
in my head and I'm like, I'm doing the evaluation top and bottom and both knees and looking for warm spots and sure shit. And I'm looking for pustulations, any kind of, uh, uh, what's that edema, pitting edema or anything like that. And sure shit, all signs. And I, okay. I, okay. So I write up my note really, really quick. And I go right into my H1's office. I go, Hey, says what? I need to see my IV antibiotics like right now, right now. And he goes, why, what is it? I go pretty positive. It's MRSA. Don't really want to do the labs. Expose everybody to that potential right here and in my little fucking lab. Um, P.S. Uh, let's just give them IV antibiotics. We don't need a peaking trough because we're not going to run them that hot. Uh, and this is what I think we should do. And he goes, okay. Boom. I go get the shit. Uh, the pharmacist tech fucking uh, mixes his little bag up. And I come out and spike him right away. The guy goes, hey, so what happened? This is like within five to six minutes. That's unheard of yeah. in anywhere. You can't do that in the civilian world. You can't. You can't. You can't go from this is what it is, and I know what it is, and I can confirm it. But by the time that confirmation comes back, because we're 100 miles, and it's going to take a day and a half or two to three days to get a result, that's if they don't fuck up on its re uh, receiving the labs. Because at the time, I had to handwrite all my labs because my coding printer went out. So it wasn't just like I had to fix you know, lab stuff. I had to fix technical uh, you know, programs and stuff and all this electrical crap. Like uh, there's a digital uh, record keeping and secondary stuff, tertiary stuff, all this good stuff. But uh, so yeah, I told them straight up, like that's gonna proliferate before we get it back into a condition we're not gonna be able to manage at this point. So my HM was like, I trust you, go knock it out. So what happened after El Centro? El Centro was actually my come to God realization spot uh, from a lot of experiences and a lot of, I would say, both my naiveties and illusions and delusions, self kind of perpetuating. You have a, a fixated romanticism of what honor means and, and service and you know the military. And that's where I got the old, no, that is not at all what, what we're doing here in, as a military anymore. Like, we're, it's a bureaucracy. This well, is politics for a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people understand that, that the military is literally just a job for most of the people in it. Yeah, for a lot of people. And El Centro was a unique command where you either go for your twilight or for them to burn you out. And I didn't know that when I volunteered. And like I said, a lot of people had their misconceptions of why I got stationed there or whatnot. Um, and it was a very interesting time, like all the way around, uh, all the way around. Uh, so I was there, got a lot of stuff done. <coughs> Personally, I got married, uh, met my wife there. She's from Mexico. It was right after an air show, in fact. Uh, beautiful times. It's a great command. It's a great uh, region. Uh, the facility is fine. I just think that, you know, being that far out, there's a lot of things that go missing and a lot of cracks that people fall into. Uh, and that, that comes from the dereliction of leadership so heartedly. Not because, you know, the Navy is inherently a bad place to serve or, you know, this command was about. No, I just think it was a couple bad apples mixed with the ability to put things where they shouldn't be, you know, sweep things under the rug when you shouldn't. Uh, literally everything you're taught not to do in the military right? Don't sweep it under the rug, lift the rug up, sweep underneath it, vacuum the rug, vacuum this side, that side, beat it outside, and then put it back in, you know? Um, but that, what I learned was that's actually more of a Marine Corps mentality to be that thorough, 
to be that efficient, to be that honorable, to be that um, true all the time, not just when it benefits you. And there were good people like that at the command. There were good leadership like that. But when stuff gets to a certain level, they can't afford to accept that. And I was like, okay, I, I get that. Here's my parachute. I'm pulling. Okay. Uh, and so that's what I did. You know, I, I uh, was going through difficult times, you know, dealing with that realization. And I was drinking a lot, like not a little bit, but like a lot of it, like a bottle of tequila a day or, you know, just bad. All right. And that was my coping mechanism. And so my wife was like, hey, I love you to death, but I'm not going to sit here and watch you drink yourself to death. And that's not acceptable. So I stopped drinking, just all in all. Uh, and then I started asking for help. I was like, hey, you know, I can't sleep. I use drinking to get at least two to three hours of sleep a day. You know, that was it. Or some days I don't drink, or I mean, I don't sleep. Um, so my doctors are like, okay, cool, try this, try that, try this, try that. And I went down the, the whole litany of pharmaceuticals to assist in sleep. Had a really bad reaction with Ambien. And I told my doctor, hey, look, I ended up butt naked in my bed wondering what the fuck happened. She goes, that's not good. And I go, yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> so we stopped that. And then she was like, you know, maybe it's this. And I was like, what's that? She goes, PTSD. I was like, nah, bitch, I ain't got no PTSD. Like, don't, don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. I've seen that on forums. I know what that does to people. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I was like, no, I'm not, that's not it. And then she was like, isn't it though? I mean, you sat here and talked about how angry you are about X, Y, and Z within, you know, the leadership and the command. And, and I was like, yeah. And then you correlate it to personal experiences. And I was like, yeah. She goes, so is there a thing you need to work on? I was like, probably, but I don't know where to fucking start. So I try to go to appointments, right? Mind you, that shouldn't be a hard thing to do, right? It was damn near impossible because I was the it guy. Yeah, that's the one problem is when you're good, really good at your job and you really stand out, but you really need help. We really aren't going to get always it. It comes over your own personal care, whether it's from you doing it to yourself or the command saying, hey, we can't lose you for the day. Who's going to yeah. run these labs? Who's going to do this? Who's going to file these medical records? Because you're the best at what you're doing especially at a small command like that, because most of my time was spent with either the CBs or the Marines and same thing. No, you can't afford to lose a guy for a day. No. And that's exactly what it ends up being because it's all the way to San Diego. You know, it's like, it's a hundred miles away. So yeah, you're talking two days minimum for any real help. Oh yeah. Like, and that, that's ended up, it ended up being that through literally pulling people's teeth to do the right thing. And trust me, that's when they had enough too. And I was like, look, you guys aren't doing the right thing. This isn't the right thing. And it ain't the right thing. And I just genuinely don't care. So, you know, through their meticulous ways, uh, they started denying me, you know, extra stuff. I had to work at MWR. So they pulled that. They're like, you're not allowed to work. You can barely do what your work is here. I'm like, no, I do all my work here. And then P.S. Also, I work there because I financially need it. P.S. Because you guys fucking up paperwork. So, I mean, I don't know where else we're going to look at this until you start fixing some stuff. And uh, and then it got down to the day where I, I'd already filed a hardship transfer for about nine months. I was waiting. 
Um, and the big dog came in, Admiral Faison. And he came in and we had a admiral's call. My back was out that day. So I had a little bit of, you know, love. And I just expressed my concerns. First, of course, I talked to him about Lamore. He'd been stationed in Lamore as well. And then I asked him about Camp Pendleton because they improved a lot of uh, treatment for Marines with for PTSD to minimize the stigmatization of it and to enhance the probability of people seeking help. On the command alone, NAFL Centro, several of my corpsmen had to cut people down from either a noose or from some other bullshit that they killed themselves with. And so the command was not about that. They were like... It was a bad mental health place. Oh, yeah. But by the end of the the conversation, Admiral Faison, all my leadership and all the leadership around was like, no, we're going to get this, we're going to move this, and we're going to move that. That was on a Thursday, okay? Uh, There was about 4 o'clock by the time his plane took off. I could see it from my from my my door essentially, right? Because that's right. We're right next to the airstrip. Um, and that following Monday, my transfer orders came in in the morning. So, I transferred to NMCSD for medical hardship and uh, treatment, uh, specific treatment, uh, hardship, whatever it was. And I was restationed in NMCSD for the last six months so it was march and i got out that was march 2011 i got out in october 2011. so you know Um, you know forrest went on to become the uh surgeon general of the navy yeah and i think we missed each other by a few months in uh san diego because i was there from june 2010 to end of september 2010. Yeah, we just missed each other. Yeah, I was there March 2011 to uh, October 2011. Um, it's crazy, 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 crazy. Because like I got there, and you expect, hey, this is a hardship medical transfer, right? Nobody knew that in the command. So my senior chief, chief, all my senior enlisted, they didn't have a fucking clue I was a hardship transfer. They thought I was just a transfer or a piece of shit because the chiefs club, you know how that works. Um, definitely had to say so in where I was stationed when I went back over to AMCSD. And I told them straight up, I have this many appointments booked. I am not going to be beneficial to anybody if you put me on the line. Why don't you put me back to CID where I could work, right? I could work very well and still make all these appointments. And I'd already made it, uh, I already took care of it because that was pretty much the scenario with the leadership. You take care of you now because we're just going to burn you. And I was like, okay, cool. So it took care of me, had it lined up with the army commander, had it lined up with the CID guys. And when I walked in, they're like, no, you're not going to call shots here. And I was like, oh, really? All right. So me and the chiefs, we know we had it out and they let me know exactly what I was going to be doing. And in uh, a month and a half, I did everything they asked me to. And within two weeks of that, within that same month and a half, my two weeks, I started to go to six different appointments a day. So within that, their standard was I would be certified on every bench within a year. And I was like, I'm not even going to be here for a year. And I'm like, cool. I did it within, I think it was like a month. And most people get it done within six months. And I got it done in a month. And I was like, yeah, 
So first and foremost, nothing like that. I picked up second class. Uh, they didn't frock me. I frocked myself. I got. I walked. I walked up and got my own letter. Walked up to the the officer of the day to sign up on all reenlistment or in, uh, advancement, and he frocked me there. And I gave the salute and I walked out and I sewed the patch on. And the next day I showed up and they were like having a fit. <laughs> so I was like, "Hey, you told me to take care of myself. I'm doing. I'm doing exactly what you said." Uh, and then after that, I just continued going to appointments. Enrichment appointments, uh, PTSD appointments, uh, pain management, you, you name it, all these different appointments. I was full for the week. Every day I had like six appointments. From, from my med hold experience, I noticed that uh, corpsmen get treated a lot differently when we're broke and we're at a medical command than, oh, yeah. say, a gunner's mate coming for med hold. Because they go, oh, you've got no medicine. We're shorthanded. So even though you're broke and you're supposed to be treated exactly like. Well, that's the thing. I didn't go to med hold. They, they right. treated me as an inter-command uh, transfer. They kind of did that to all the foremen too, though. Even though they were yeah. on they still were like, well, you can do something. Because, you know, you're at a hospital. And, you know, hospitals are always undermanned. So you could probably figure out something that we can use you for. Even though we were much like you should have been in some sort of holding position. But that is what the Navy is, and I don't think that's changed, which is sad. No, actually, uh, I was just helping out a dude that got canned like that uh, in Pendleton, or I should say through a secondary person, because his EOS is in like fucking six weeks or some shit she was saying, and he ain't got nothing started. So I don't know who burnt him, but I was like, bruh, no, they still burn people. They, they, um, sometimes we do burn ourselves. Correct. In every scenario, though, that I've seen it, okay, it's always initiated through a chain of command. Yeah. We can't benefit from you, nor can we fill this billet. So we got to shit you out somehow. Yeah. Right. We got to burn you. We got to lose you. We don't care. The billet needs to be filled. So TPUs were created and are utilized. So TPUs then turn into this hostile environment where there's a pecking order. Oh, you're in the fleet this much, and I was in the fleet that much, or you were combat, and I wasn't, and this and this, and, and I'm like, no. So I'm actually glad I didn't end up in a TPU. Med hold at NMCSD is different. They actually have Marine units overwatching everybody and doing all this interaction, making sure they're going to their appointments. I'm the opposite. Like, nobody knows what to fucking do with me. Nobody's even known that I'm there for a medical hardship transfer. Nothing. And it didn't come out until I think about a month before I was due to my EOS. And that's when I learned about, you know, uh, the boards, the med boards and all these different boards. And I was like, look, if you keep me here a moment longer, I'm gonna physically harm somebody. And I meant it. So the chief and the ch from my command of the lab and or the, whatever they call them, the senior enlisted, cause they're all chiefs. They're not master chiefs, but one's senior, one's lesser. She was a great person when you know, I was in lab tech school with her and she was one of my professors. And now that I'm here, she's telling me, oh, I owe the Navy all this, that, and the third. And I'm like, that's great. Hey, if I give you this piece of paper, will you let me go to med hold so we don't have to deal with any of this anymore? She goes, yeah. So I walk over to med hold. I talk to that pock pock because they're all Filipino, okay? They don't like me, okay? I'm big, and I look mean, and I'm aggressive. So they already don't like me. And I'm like, great, good. I don't like you either, okay? And so 
Senor Pac Pac says, hey, look, you're playing mom and pop games, but this is where it happened. I don't know if you know that bridge between building 26 and the hospital. Yeah. It sits over that steam room or whatever's there. So he decides to stop me there by pushing me in the chest and saying, you're playing block, 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 block. I don't know. Okay. Because he had a horrible accent. And all I know is, hey, I'm bigger than you. And you're not paying attention to where you're at, chief, straight up. And I start looking over the edge and I start looking around. I go, it's extremely easy to get rid of things that are giving me a headache right now. That's all I said. Okay. He got, he got it really, really, really quickly. I'm like, hey, literally, I don't care. Okay. I have a wife. I don't really care. I can serve a couple of years and whatever you got me in, whatever the entrapment would be. If I threw your ass over this fucking bridge right now, everything I'm asking for help for is going to be hand delivered to me. I knew that and he knew that. And I'm going like, all right, cool. So we saw eye to eye. I ain't never had a single problem after that day. Not a one. I showed up in flip-flops and board shorts every day from that point on. Every day. Every single day. Everybody looked at me walking through the lab in flip-flops and board shorts to go sign my retarded, stupid logbook between my appointments that they made me do. And I was like, cool. I know fuck, fuck games. I serve with Marines, bro. This is nothing. You don't have me mopping rain. You don't have me fucking sweeping sand in a fucking uh, kiddie pool. I, I don't know. You don't got me doing dumb shit. This is just you thinking you got me boxed in. So I left the command on uh, a high note, uh, <laughs> to say the least. And I, when I got out, it was a whole nother show. It was just completely different. The VA, even though I'd started the VA process, uh, I think it's six months before I, I left because I had good mentors. You know, they just weren't in my direct line of chain of command. Um, so I knocked all that shit out. And even the VA stuff, though, was backlogged. So it wasn't what you would assume it would be because you don't know what it is until you do it. Uh, and then that was a whole nother thing, like getting basic care. And that's all I asked for ever since 2010 when I started going for drinking, just basic shit that I would render daily to people. I was asking for the same equivalent, never got it, not a once, even still to this day. Damn. So after you're out, I know you went and used your GI Bill. Yeah. And you did audio tech school. Mm -hmm. What was the leap from lab guy, Corman, to audio tech? It wasn't a big leap. So I've, I was in a band growing up, uh, of fourth grade to eighth grade. I played trombone. Um, and I played in jazz band trombone. I was a second chair. Uh, I loved computer-based programming with music. Um, I love music, like love, love, love music. I was the guy. You want to talk about music? You want to talk about concerts? We go to concerts. I'm there. We're hanging out. <sighs> I love music. I love, I love liberty. Okay, so like, even though I was in the Navy, you give me liberty, give me leave. There's no such thing as the Navy. Okay, I'm just gone and in my world. And I loved it. You know, I went to Coachella. I loved Coachella. You know, all these different festivals, music festivals, art festivals. And I was never uh, not into music. And when me and my wife were getting out, I should say, when we were dealing with all the, the crap, uh, you know, with the military stuff, I should say, it was weird 
because I had bought an MPC, uh, a Kai MPC 2000 XL, which if is, you're in audio, it's in uh, a MIDI machine. So oh. it's a MIDI player and it's iconic in the hip hop world. Everybody that's everybody knows what uh, uh, MPC uh, 2000, MPC 600, you know, it's, it's just the model. Um, the MPC XL 2000 or 2000 XL, uh, it was blue. I had my mod cards, I had my MIDI inputs, and I'd do my sequencing. Boom, 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 right? All that good stuff. And then you do a little bit of sampling. So if you have like some old school, you know, uh, Fleetwood Mac, you fucking sample it, you can tune it and make it sound any which way. And all that good stuff. So I would play with it all the time. I bought it in 2007 when I came home, or 2006 when I first came home from Iraq. And I would just mess with it every day, every day, just trying to figure it out. And so when I got married, my wife, of course, she knew I was into that stuff. Um, and even though I was drinking a lot, I would still be messed with my stuff. Uh, and then when I got out, uh, it was between business school and medical stuff. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to business school first. So I went to National University. Uh, well, learned that business school is nothing but micromanagement and uh, bullshit tactics to get you know, you're all managing schools or any business school teach just micromanagement now. And I was like, no, I hate it. I don't like what you're saying. It's no. And then something with music came out from the Art Institute San Diego, like one of those little, you know, on your phone or you're scrolling or something or one of those feeds things, Heidi saw it, showed me. She goes, hey, there's this audio engineering uh, school. I was like, oh, that sounds tight. So I went in, asked a bunch of questions. Uh, they showed me what the program was, and I was set. It was an expensive school. Uh, and so I had to use my yellow ribbon as well. And uh, then I had to get a lot of ADA assistance because of my disabilities. And that's actually what stopped me from graduating because the school wasn't adhering to their ADA compliances. And I didn't have any uh, basic continuity of care with any of my conditions at that time. So ended up having to withdraw with, I think a little over eight months to go out of a three-year program. So did good, but didn't get to finish it. And I continued it by creating the show, uh, The Devil Doc Talk Show, which is why it was the podcast. So I met you, like I said, in the beginning of this, as we circle all the way back around. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good circle. It is. Either 2013, 2014, we've both been around a few different um, veterans organizations, to say the least. Uh, we've had our opinions about the Wounded Warrior Pyramid Scheme mm -hmm. um, and some other ones. And we met up through, uh, what was it, IAVA or something like that, up in L.A. at some boxing gym of some director. Yeah, that's Canelo's gym, or was where Canelo was training. Oh, damn uh, that redhead, white Mexican dude? Yeah. Yeah. Damn. People um, would be like, yeah, why is this white dude making fun of Mexican dude? It's a Mexican, my fuck. <laughs> hey. So, yeah, no, that was a cool spot, though. It was. It was um, a really cool spot. And, you know, if I ever moved back to California, I'd love to go there, but I'm not planning on moving back to California anytime soon. Uh, a lot of people aren't. Yeah. So, it's not that great. It, not really. So we met, we talked about your Devil Doc Talk Show, which is a great show. It's a great resource. If you, if anyone is actually a veteran or not a veteran who wants to go listen to Joey, have some amazing interviews. Um, 
it's on what all the streaming apps uh yeah actually we just got picked up on spotify a few months ago and then also on amazon music a couple weeks ago so we're on all the app uh all the apps you can imagine uh i'm still couple, trying to get back say again i was gonna say you have a couple hundred episodes no I, i've always kept it very minimal uh i think we're at about 68 70 somewhere on that uh been doing it for about eight years uh i think uh 2012 yeah so about eight years um and the show started off pretty much as a vent to discuss a lot of the issues that me and my uh co-host at the time doc jacobs were seeing and you know relating and he had came by one day after i was having it out with my wife and um she was working full-time at the time and i was having a lot a lot of problems at school because that's what was happening and with the the, uh, continuity of service our care so I was very honest with them, and I was honest with my, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. I just don't want to deal with this shit, you know? And so he came over, and we were talking. He goes, so what's, what's the deal? I know this isn't you. I go, I know, but this is what I'm trying to do, and this is what's happening. I fucking don't know what to do. And so we just sat down, and I wrote out an episode, and we started talking about the issues. At the time, you know, California was doing a lot about the Second Amendment, uh, having to put your firearm in one case and your ammunition in another lock case, separated and all this dumb shit. So we were talking about it, and at this time, a lot of veterans were not around. There wasn't a veteran entertainment uh, circle. There wasn't a, uh, uh, a pecking order of veterans within entertainment, right? It was just a podcast to have a moment to vent, to discuss things, and to relate to stories, and to help people connect to different resources. So if if like for me, I didn't know what a CEB was. I didn't know what a, a med board was. I didn't know what uh, transitional care was. I didn't know anything. My pregnant wife didn't have medical care when we got out. Like she was seven months pregnant and they didn't give us an extra day, even though I was a hardship transfer for medical because I didn't know the technicality. I didn't know anything. So it, it was one of those things like, you know, the whole world tells you that there's these, these laws but it seems to be that the authority doesn't follow the very own laws that they make you follow. So I had a very uh, rough disillusionment time at that point. And it came around, well, I was trying all the medicines they gave me. I was trying all the different uh, therapies that they gave me or would at least try to give me. And it just never worked. Nothing worked um, except the show. I used it as a vent. I used it as an editing tool. Uh, even though I was stammering and stuttering a lot, I'd had a lot of repetitious thoughts. I was very stuck a lot of the time, uh, very angry at that time, uh, very much toxic to myself and my relationships. Uh, people didn't want to understand. They didn't want to help actually help. They wanted what I was going through to stop, regardless of what happens. Uh, and that's the truth of what a lot of veterans go through. It's not that people don't love you. It's not that they don't want you around. It's that they don't know how to help, and they're probably terrified to cause a worse situation to do something because they don't know how to help. And they think there's a doctor or a program or something that is, oh, well, it says on the TV, look, it helps veterans. You know, that's not that's not how it works, you know, sadly enough. No, there so, and and there's like a hierarchy of veterans in need, I've noticed. Oh, yeah. I, you and I've talked about it. 
you have your combat wounded, and of your combat wounded, you have a hierarchy. The amputees are always the headline, you know, if you see a commercial with a wounded veteran, it's an amputee. Then well, again, the physical injuries, it, think yeah. of it as a marketing. This is what I had to do, right? I had to disassociate myself from the identity of being a corpsman because the identity of being a corpsman, you do this to my Marines with that mindset, I'm going to fucking kill you, right? Yeah. Now, that's the worst part is you're not allowed to. And even though you know they're causing more harm doing this, you're not allowed to. You're not even allowed to state, hey, you're manipulating these injured amputees into these political schemes that you're not actually going to physically help them with medical care, prolonged medical care, and lifelong medical care. You're just going to give them a couple of fucking Percocets. You're going to give them a fucking, uh, 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 what do they call them, things, a prosthetic, and then send them on the way. And then when they come back, you're going to make them jump through the same hoops that you're making me jump through, right? And that, yet, they use their image to create their own advertising. So a, a lot of these nonprofits, I, I go, their hearts are in it in the right way. A lot of these veterans, you know, that they're in the entertainment world, uh, the T-shirt companies, you know, these coffee companies, um, you know, all these different things, they, they're in it for the right reasons. But they're highly romanticized in how it goes about within the corporate or business world. Exactly. And as soon as you don't understand those two things, you're going to be utilized as basically a poster child. That's it. Like, and I, I don't, I don't mean it in a negative way. Just like I don't mean a rattlesnake is any better than a gopher snake. But if I were to choose the one to bite me, it would be the gopher snake, right? If I want the one around me, I choose the gopher snake, hundred uh, percent of the time. But the demonization of stigmas is what happens tremendously more with the veteran community because, one, if you have PTSD, well, it can go two ways. You either got it from this, that, and the third, and you're weak, or you got it from this, that, and the third, and you're a piece of shit. We don't care. You could, you could have saved a village of children, and that's, what's, that's what your problem is. You feel you shouldn't have children of your own since you've seen so many die and you weren't able to help them. Well, who cares? Nobody gives a fuck. Wave a flag, shut the fuck up, vote Democrat, vote Republican, shut the fuck up. We don't care. Okay. So <laughs> let's go, let's jump up to it now. So here we are, 2020, in probably the greatest year I have ever seen in terms of shit shows. Like there, there's shit in the Navy that I never thought would top be topped by anything. And 2020 it's a shit tornado. It is. 2020 was yeah. like hold my beer. But now that I say that. You are here, what, eight years, nine years removed from your service. You have the successful podcast. Uh, you moved into an amazing home slash compound, for lack of a better word. And I don't mean that in like a prepper or a doomsday guy, but like your your property that you have is, what, one and a half acres, give or take? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one and a half. You've gotten into gardening. You've been doing a series on your podcast about uh, healing through growing through healing through growing or something to that effect. Healing by growing. Yeah. You become a big advocate of cannabis products, whether it's CBD, THC, to help heal. Um, when I met you, you were really in a lot of pain from your back and other issues. Now you, every time we talk, you're always happy and really upbeat. So how has 2020 been to you? It's been what I would relate to others is 
I'm in a place where I get a, for the lack of better words, um, watch people's bubbles pop that I know that are have never been real. So it's kind of like this. Uh, let me let me rephrase that. Going through what I've gone through in the past eight years and accomplishing what I've reaccomplished, right? You know, going through homelessness and bankruptcy and then re- being able to reestablish the finances, understanding the game, understanding the finances, understanding how to improve your credit, find good real estate, and make your dollars stretch as much as you possibly can, especially given the circumstances of disability. Um, all of that has taught me that a lot of the things we personally take uh, offense to are actually just systematic policies. They're very, very numb to humanity. They have no kind of context to your story or your plight or your tribulation. Uh, and it's a cookie cutter method of, of processing things bureaucratically. The United States is that, the government is that, programs are that, nonprofits are that, okay? That's how they operate fundamentally. But that isn't how you have to operate as a human being, okay? And that's where gardening literally took that perspective of, of I'm out of control of my life and I have nothing to look forward to. Podcasting was the first thing. I can edit things and not have stammers or repeated words or lost chain, trains of thought. Um, I'm not angry. I'm not triggered. I'm not this, that, and the third. I can edit that. I'm in control, right? And gardening was that next step. Not only am I in control, I'm also out of control, just like in real life. Meaning, like in a good interview, I could hopefully get the right thing by asking the right question or, or uh, presenting the right information. But in gardening, there is no hope. There is, you either water it right at the right pH and you give it the right nutrients, or that plant isn't going to thrive as well as it can, period. So taking that basic understanding of plant, uh, theology, I should say, right? or philosophy, I translated the roots back to my basic understanding of who I am, um, the basics of what humanity are, the basics of my self-identity. And within that, I learned I have to still nurture those basic identities, meaning I'm a person, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a, I'm a friend, whatever else. You know, beyond that, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ and Jesus and God. Uh, it doesn't mean that I follow the religious uh, dogma, that of which has been presented throughout all of history, right? Nor does it mean that I apply that ridiculous cross and hypocritical judgment of other religions. Simply put, I'm just me, right? And I'm okay. Whether I'm in pain, I'm okay. Because as long as I'm breathing and have a heartbeat, as much as there's a little bit of sunlight and a cross breeze, and a little bit of water, cool, that plant's gonna thrive, then maybe I can do that. You know, I can have a little bit of air, good sun, good water, good foods, you know, focus on the basic self structures, meaning I have to take care of my mind, okay, my body, and my spirit. And within those three things, I can focus wholeheartedly without complicating the rest of my world with conditions or disabilities and all that crap that I know exists, all the triggers still happen, all the nightmares still happen. But when it does happen, I'm not so shooken by them. Like as the symptoms approach, I go, hey, 
cool. What's up, friend? Hey, man, you're going to think of this. I'm like, oh, God. All right. Well, I'm getting uncomfortable. I'm sweating. All right. All right. All right. So what would happen if this happened then? All right. Like the other day, it's horrible to say out loud, but I go, this is what a lot of people are afraid to say. I'm terrified of what I experienced in combat occurring here in the United States. But yet here we are. And I'm the most calm I've been in years because I know what to do when shit hits that fan. Right. I was going to ask you next. So we'll talk about COVID real quick and then we'll jump over to the looming possibility of violence. And I think that COVID had a lot to do with setting up the scenario for a possibility of violence. From what you've seen, and I know you're not deep paying attention, but putting your lab tech hat back on, um, what do you think of the numbers that we're seeing? Well, okay. Two things initially, all right? When you have a corresponding variance of statistics, right? And you're not equating for the totality of those variances. I mean, you're trying to, huh? What do you mean by that? Okay. My bad. If you have this many variables in the equation, i.e. X, Y, Z, right? That's okay. We can, we can substantiate three, four, five. But when you have the entire alphabet, I think it's like what, 26, 27 letters, whatever it is. And you're not, uh, you're not holding your standard through each variance, meaning, hey, this is a COVID-related death. Hey, this is a COVID death due to COVID. Hey, this person had COVID. Or B, this person was exposed to COVID, right? They're all being categorized as COVID deaths. Their correspondence is being uh, literally written as different stipulating circumstances that would still contribute to this number of statistic. So if I were to say an automobile accident related death, and I didn't differentiate between alcoholism or toxic, toxic, uh, toxicity, there you go, uh, intoxication, right? Uh, if I didn't uh, account for cellular phone distraction, uh, medical condition, respiratory seizement, heart failure, all of these things can contribute or even technically the road itself was this light put in place within the appropriate uh, research conducted within line of sight? Uh, did the engineers conduct the measurements? Was the road flat? Was it tilted? Was it wet? What were the conditions? What was this actual breakdown of information? What was the context of the accident, right? All of this stuff is excruciatingly important when you say this is a result of that. Now, if you don't, I'm just going to simply ask the question of what the motivation is to minimize the absolute context of a scenario. And usually it's going to be to correspond to a behavioral or a psychological idea to get people to behave in that manner. It's psychological warfare 101, right? If I can get you to believe this is what's happening and you behave in this manner, the thing that I say is happening doesn't necessarily have to be real or it can be real. We just don't know. So in a scenario where COVID-19 pops up right now, and we have a statistic, my question isn't to question the people that say COVID is serious or not. My uh, intent isn't to minimize the deaths that have resulted either A, of COVID-19 or not, because death is a serious circumstance. 
uh, or experience. It's a very involved experience for everybody, uh, regardless of how how we want to pretend things could be dissociated, right? Rick Moranis got knocked out this fucking morning in New York, and I get angry because I go, oh, I like Rick Moranis, right? Well, that association is what creates a lot of problems right now. So with COVID-19, if we're not going to associate all the different relative reasons why people are dying this year to other things like the flu, the pneumonias, and whatnot, if we're not going to have the conversation of the specific deaths that have occurred, much like we do with the specific deaths of 9-11, if we're not going to catalogically say and state and read the names that have deceased and been deceased and stated, hey, this is a COVID-19 death, I'm going to say it's probably a little bit dramatized because if it was, they'd be using it 100% more, every which one, media on the left and the right. And if it was 200,000 deaths, there's 200,000 bodies. I would, for one, expect to see at least a body, a body. I'm not saying that I haven't, and I'm not saying that I want to. I'm saying that if you're going to restrict this much of the United States and this much of its people, please show me the fucking bodies like they did in Syria. Show me the chlorine deaths. Show me those babies. Show me that baby floating upside down. Give me that trauma, but make it real because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And it's been eight months or six months, whatever it's been. Well, and I was going to say one of the things on my other little show I do, my Apocalypse Diaries blog, is the lockdowns work early on. If you're on an island and you can prevent everyone from coming in and you only have one case and you lock everyone down, it's probably going to work. But right now, in, I, I leave this to you to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Viruses neither live nor die. They're RNA. And that being said, this virus is out in the wild. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle. We're not going to, even with the vaccine, we're not going to ever have zero COVID cases. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the same circumstance with H1N1, okay? When was the last time you heard somebody being tested for H1N1, receiving the diagnosis of H1N1, and having a mortality uh, related to H1N1? It's that we haven't, we haven't heard we haven't been paying attention. Because it's not being publicized. There's not a ticker mm -hmm. at the bottom of every news channel saying, here's all the new cases. Exactly. And when H1N1 came out, it was exactly the way it is now, but people didn't react this way. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if there was more deaths or not of H1N1. I just know that an entire country didn't, or n multiple, I should say, world globally, didn't shut itself down in fear of how it's going to react or how people, the populace, is going to react to it. I think what happened was, and I correlated this to uh, one of a celebrity's posts, Kim uh, Jong, the funny guy. Uh, he's a doctor, okay? Oh, oh yeah, uh, the guy from Hangover. Yeah, and community and all those great things. I actually like him as – I just like the guy. He's a great guy. He's a great comedian, you know, great actor. But he posted something about how COVID-19 is not political. It's scientific. And I go, is it? Is it or is it really political? I mean, come on, it's not science. It's This is politicized. And somebody requested me to explain. And when I did, I utilized a very good analogy, which was the opioid pandemic or epidemic, whatever we want to call that other thing. We had a knee-jerk reaction, knee reaction to, and that's what a lot of authorities do in the presence of something that is potentially bad. We have knee-jerk reactions. 
We don't want to accumulate information and make a, a BAMPSIS, right? We don't even do that basic thought analysis that most Marines know, okay? They just go, oh, restrict it from everybody. Nobody gets it because it's poison. I'm like, hold on. So the poison that's been prescribed since the beginning of time that I can reflect back on, the reason why Great Britain and China ever went to war, it was called the what war? Uh, uh, Opiate wars. Opium. Yeah. So the fact that this medicine is now being stigmatized and demonized because of its proliferation and use by pharmaceutical companies to create addicts, right? We, as patients, now can't get it ever. Yeah fucking almost anywhere okay what does that mean for medicine itself nothing good look at it you have more black market use of of drugs you have more uh addicts you have more fentanyl being distributed by china actually so you have all these synthetic synthetic heroin byproducts being slewed around uh i had just our small town has had four deaths uh, just recently of fentanyl overdose because they thought it was a morphine pill or Oxycontin rather. Yeah, this is serious stuff. So at that base knee jerk reaction, what did we create within the opiate pandemic or epidemic? That, all of that. Yeah, now, we, what did we, we create, create with COVID-19? Same thing. We, right. and, it's, and it's going to the next phase. So we're, we said COVID, you and I are kind of on the same page with that, that there's a, a little bit, it's a deeper thing than just saying it's the worst thing ever. Yeah, we can't we can't hyper politicize something that one we can clearly see is not something that should be significantly uh, dramatized or feared of. Because if it was a warfare, if this was war, like Donald Trump has said, you know, this is war against a invisible enemy, the China's virus, right? Chinese virus. Okay, let's think triage in combat what are our signs and symptoms of our shooters what are we doing can they shoot back if 99.9% of the military aged personnel of your fighting force is capable of just kind of going to this thing well 100% of that needs to be reality not the 0.09 or 0.1% that creates delusionary state of fear mongering and just an absolute annihilation of normalcy, social normatives, well, uh, to the point. One, one of the big things that, that's come out, and then we're going to jump on to the potential unrest in the election. Uh, one of the things that's come out is that, what is it, 90, uh, 94% of all, it's either 94 or 96% of all COVID deaths had comorbidities. And then the remainder were, were none. I follow a doctor who talks about metabolic disorder. And a lot of the things, though, that they were saying is with these comorbidities, uh, I looked into it a little bit. They were either told that they, when they were admitted, that they had comorbidities. Like, so I, I, I'm a diabetic. And then the other one was medical record references. So how many of these people actually knew that they had metabolic disorder? And I would say that that number is closer to probably 99% of the people who died had a comorbidity, whether they knew it or not. And what, since, we're exactly. not, since we haven't done 200,000 plus autopsies to really go and look. In order to have a certificate of death, you have to have a breakdown of what the result was and why. And if it's not being conducted, then that tells you what is happening. Okay, like this. 
if you know something has occurred within a hospital that caused a critical uh, mishap, right? We also call them sentinel events. And I'm pretty sure somebody knows that besides me, right? Um, if what I did actually harmed the patient more, there is a line of obligation and legalities, okay? If the inherent system itself is changed at a dime, on a dime, ever since COVID-19's come out, you have to start asking why. That's it. That's the only thing I could say. Because then you, got, you, you, you get into too many variances of, well, what is a comorbidity? What is a uh, metabolic uh, uh, disease? What, it, what classifies? Are you saying black people? Oh, so black people that are overweight are dying more. So therefore, COVID-19 is white supremacy and should be eradicated because, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where the <laughs> fuck is all these theories coming from, Brent? So okay. that being said, let's jump over to the other part and let's talk about this. We got this crazy election coming up. Yeah, it's pretty shit showy. I can give two shits who you want to vote for or who I'm I'm taking this thing kind of humorless, humorously, not humorlessly. Um, that being said, we've experienced nothing but the media for the last seven months, six months, seven now, of telling us how fearful we should be of COVID. Then we had a series of events that came out during us being continuously fed panic about the disease that led to some racial unrest. Here we are now. We just watched the biggest shit show of a debate, which I loved every minute that I watched. I thought it was the greatest television ever. Yeah, it was really good. And then we find out today that the president has tested positive for COVID. Yes. So, which is pretty funny in and of itself it is. either side you lean on <laughs> yeah it's actually kind of humorous but so here's a question is from both the corman side which you know the healing side and the, the want to see people get better side but also the combat vet side what do you think is going to happen on november 4th the day after let's let's put it this way what we've heard right people want to do is civil unrest on a scale that at this point has not been seen, which means that the accumulative, I think it's a hundred and whatever days of riots, Oregon spaced or Seattle, I don't yeah. even know where they're at with this anymore. They're, they're saying that that scale of an issue is going to be escalated even more so. Nation so life. this is coming from a vice president, presidential uh, candidate. This isn't coming from some I, I love making fun of veterans because everybody will know this. It's not coming from a long-haired, bearded, uh, smoked-out hippie veteran that's saying, oh, the Char Charlie's all around us, right? It's, that's not coming from people like that. It's not a delusion. It isn't a cognitive uh, 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 dis a delusion. It's not any – it's real. Uh, a, a vice presidential candidate and presidential candidate, Joe Biden, have stated – that civil unrest will be the way that they choose to conduct themselves. And at the same token, the media is asking a sitting president, right? Will he commit to transitional, peaceful transition of power? And I go, why aren't we asking the other side that when they're the ones clearly baiting this on? Why can't we say George Soros? Because he's clearly paying for a lot of what's happening. 
And why can't we also ask the question of why does the media feel as though everything has to fall within what they say is going to happen? Because to me, nobody's going to fucking shoot anybody between right now and January fucking whenever the inauguration is. Not a fucking soul. Nobody's going to do that. Well, it seems like all the all the shooting that has happened um, amongst protesters slash rioters, because they're, I don't buy into the mostly peaceful protests. The only protests that we have had have been peaceful. Everything else that has gone to shit has been a riot, yeah. and no one's willing to call it out. So if we had a protest that went to shit, that's not a mostly peaceful protest. That's a riot, period. Right. It's kind of like asking the question of if I go out with uh, my wife and children and my kids behave okay the majority of the time, but then literally shit in their hand and smear it in the waitress's face, I'm not going to call that a mostly peaceful dinner. Yeah. I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call that what that is. What the fucking goddamn fuck, dude? What the fucking fuck, dude? So we're, that's what that is. So. Right, going with that train of thought was just basically, so we have had the three deaths in Kenosha and a, a couple of the in fact uh, not give a fuck uh, coalition, the, the black mafia, the black, not mafia, uh, militia guys who... The one that shot himself in the leg? Yeah, and I think he shot two other people accidentally. Oh, my but bad. it seems like... One was in self. One was in self-defense, and then some negligent negligent discharges. Outside of that, you're right. No one is shooting each other, and we have this like crazy thought that like there's going to be gunplay soon. I don't think that's going to happen. Nobody wants that. All right. Like here's the truth of the truths. They want to destabilize us to a point where it looks like we might have to do that. So out of fear, both sides are looking at each other like, "Is it go time?" not looking up whatsoever okay now that's the tactic i agree with when leadership says hey you're all going to do a bunch of push-ups until fuckstick gets it right all right we all both know we're not going to give a shit on how many times this asshole up ahead says you're going to just be here i guess you're just going to be here we're going to look down because we're not going to touch that guy we're going to fucking touch that guy okay now in that spectrum of thought we both know hey actually sometimes when the scenario presents itself, when you're out in wherever you're out at, and that piece of shit that's making your life miserable and all 30 other people, and there's no reason for him to do that, there's a very easy step to take. What's going to happen? Okay? Now, if, uh, if, if people go, hey, it's going to be civil war, I go, no way. No way. We're too civil. We're too passive. Nobody wants that shit. I, I if it, my Republican friends that, like, if Biden wins, um, there is going to be zero uh, conservative rioting because they're too lazy to go out. Lazy or not, it's just I, they're not going to do it. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like it, it's humorous, but there's like just no sense that certain people are going to go out because it's not – I don't care left or right, whatever. Do whatever you want. Leave me the fuck alone. But there is one group of people out there rioting all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, here's the, the interesting thing I read right before we got on was the Proud Boys and BLM had a conference where they both denounced yeah. white supremacy. And I go, and this white supremacy, black supremacy, black oppression, white oppression, it's all just a con game to create a dissonance within 
the mind state of people who believe in that. And it's the same thing that I went through within the Navy. I had major dissonance with what was being done because it was absolutely amoral. It was ill-moral. It was the counter to morality. It was the opposite of, of, of Semper Fidelis and honor cringe commitment, right? It was, mm, we're going to save some pennies. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? So what's happening now in this transition of violence, right? And I say it is a transition of violence. It happens to be something where even though the guy got shot um, by a BLM member or Antifa, I don't know, and he was a, a MAGA wearing hat guy, right? <clears throat> even if Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people, killed two, right? Even if, I don't know what else, if these fires up throughout California and Oregon are actually arson, even if well, all they, of that- They aren't arson for most of them, but whether it's tied to this or not is a whole different story. Right, well, there's everybody's asking those conspiracy theory questions. And I don't denounce anybody's question. I just go, is it more rational to say that there's some of these things, like a 50-50, yeah. Right, there's 50% this possibility and 50% that possibility. Now, if I were to say, where's the most money involved and what's the most money being able to be um, transferred from one point to another or power, then that's going to tell you your motivation and more than likely who's involved. I agree. So let's let's end it with something positive, Joey. <laughs> so um, Obviously, the show is called After the Battle Campfire, which is based in this idea that um, after battles back in the old days with samurai and all that, you didn't have planes to take you home. You kind of had a, you fought during the day and then you went back to an area to camp at night and really sit around the campfire and tell, talk shit, basically. So the channel is called Modern Ronin. And I really want to emphasize something about giving back and the true spirit of Ronins, which was wanderers after they lost their masters. So to you, what does it mean to be a modern Ronin? Well, I mean, honestly, it's kind of one of those things where it plays onto the whole identity and that pursuance of identity. So there really isn't a transition of the person themselves, but maybe the perspective of where they're at. That would be the biggest thing of what like Ronin and the history of Ronin and honor to me would be is it, there's not a real transition. There's you're not fucking jumping through a goddamn whirlpool and all of a sudden shit's different. Right. It's an internal battle that we have to realize is just that it's an internal battle. And if having a master to serve transitions to you now serving yourself as your own master then you should be able to transition those skills of leadership and followership kind of well or better. But that's what happened with the Ronin. They didn't know what to do, okay? And with that warrior spirit, you're, you're kind of dislodged from your normalcy, right? Your, your lifestyle, your existence, your habit, your, your schedule. Like we were discussing at the beginning of the conversation with my father and, and mother's uh, way of uh, honing that schedule and keeping me active and focusing on things like that right when i was a young man i lost sight of that importance simply because i didn't necessarily understand its viability within the moment because from moment to moment your young mind may not see what's coming down the coming down the pipeline or coming around you flanking you 
You may not know that somebody's baiting you into something, so you overreact. Exactly. You don't know all these different things, right? And what happened with the Ronin as they transitioned from warrior to, uh, I, I believe, a lot of them became landowners. Yeah, uh, farmers, mercenaries, they kind yeah. of everything. Exactly what we're seeing right now with veterans getting out and state contracting. People like you want to get into growing. I mean, some right. of the cannabis growers are veterans. Some of the greatest cannabis growers I met are veterans. And I go, the coolest thing about that is it's a field that of which is so apart from your latter identity that people feel as though there's nothing left of that person in. And I go, no, it's complete opposite. Both things exist. And it's really a harmonious effort of, of being that warrior in a garden and not a gardener in a war where you understand that importance. Yes. Where the Ronin did clearly because you want to provide your yourself in the future with security. Everybody does. That I think is a human and it's very intrinsically human and societal normal normalcy. It's a very normal thing to desire for. Uh, it, it's within the spectrum or that pyramid of necessities or whatever they call that, uh, the basic needs. Oh, you know, uh, Pavlov's or Mavlov's hierarchy of needs. Something yeah, like right. All of that stuff is important, but it doesn't have to happen one after the other, up and down, just perfectly. Sometimes things transition and leapfrog from one another. It's just like the grieving process, just like most people go through with ego death. And that's extremely important for warriors to go through. Yeah. Um, because you're, you're, that's truth. You're no longer this thing. You're not able to do that thing. But that thing does identify you. And you were identified by that for a very long time. However, life, for a lot of the guys that I know that have committed suicide, right, ended when they were 30 or 28 or 27 or 19. You know, these younger guys and younger girls that are doing this thing called suicide, a lot of them aren't even deploying. They're faced with this enigmatic uh, decision of identity and loss or fulfillment of honor or lack of fulfillment of honor and within those uh emotions and mental processes they lack the tools to cut their own path through anything um and much like the ronin when when they were just kind of disembodied and disavowed and went from like a prestigious to a very low mercenary identity uh that happens traditionally throughout every every uh phase of society that goes in and out of war yeah and that's where we're at i i think it's a good place to be much like how you know covid 19's i think forcing us all to look inward more even into our own households right our own marriages our own relationships with our children and our own community how are we providing uh, a better tomorrow for them how is this thing such a if it is a detrimental uh virus or not how is this thing crippling the United States of America? And if a warrior sees it the way that, you know, you and I clearly see it is there could be multiple games being played, but I'm not a pawn and I'm not a bishop, nor am I a queen or a king. I have no involvement in this game. And the further I remove myself from, from that game, I remove the pieces that those individuals playing the game can actually be util utilizing against me and others. See, that's so, about the politics side. That's why I'm not taking this thing like this is life or death, uh, religious crap. It's, it is what it is. 
Right. The politici- po- politics have become a new age dogma. The same way that science, I believe, has become new age dogma. Yeah. You will abide. You will confirm. You will. And I'm like, this is worse than the Catholic Church. Yeah. Like, kneel, sit, stand. I'm like, no. Okay. I'm not in church. This is science. Ask more questions. Look at the variances. Look at the studies. Who's conducting them? Why are they being paid for? Why is this study being paid for over that study? Who's behind those studies? That's going to tell you why things look the way they look and feel the way they feel when you walk into any kind of uh, uh, vaccination attempt. Okay? What is the motivation? Who's behind it and why? Is this a really good thing? And if the answer is, I don't know, don't fucking put it in your body. Because we tell kids that like with drugs back in there. Yeah. You don't know it's PCP or cocaine. Just say no. I'm not, I don't want a piece of pee or cocaine. I don't want any of that. Okay? <laughs> All right. Yeah. We have done almost two and a half hours. <clears throat> That's what's up. Yeah. I love it, man. Thank you for being the first guest. That means Thank a lot. Thank you for having me. And, and like I always tell you, dude, this is a great, uh, great platform and format. Uh, I really dig the site. I really dig the, the emblem and our logo. And just chilling with people, having talks, I think, is the primary thing. I mean, take the debate. Do, does that look like anybody's going to come up with any answers or solutions? I don't know. No. Yeah. So, you know, we could definitely do things a little bit different as a society as we're going forward. And then even as, you know, just brothers doing shit together and, you know, whatever it takes. It's just chill. Like, chill. It is. Chill. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you. You're the best. You are the best. Later, homie. Do you want me to just hang up now or what? Uh, Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com. On Instagram, The Modern Ronin. On Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.